Prince Bull. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Carl Manchester, 2012. Prince Bull by Charles Dickens. Prince Bull, a fairy tale. Once upon a time, and of course it was in the golden age, and I hope you may know when that was, for I am sure I don't, though I have tried hard to find out, there lived in a rich and fertile country a powerful prince whose name was Bull. He had gone through a great deal of fighting in his time, about all sorts of things, including nothing, but had gradually settled down to be a steady, peaceable, good-natured, corpulent, rather sleepy prince. This puissant prince was married to a lovely princess, whose name was Fair Freedom. She had brought him a large fortune, and had borne him an immense number of children, and had set them to spinning, and farming, and engineering, and soldiering, and sailoring, and doctoring, and lawyering, and preaching, and all kinds of trades. The coffers of Prince Bull were full of treasure. His cellars were crammed with delicious wines from all parts of the world. The richest gold and silver plate that ever was seen adorned his sideboards. His sons were strong, his daughters were handsome, and, in short, you might have supposed that if there ever lived upon earth a fortunate and happy prince, the name of that prince, take him for all in all, was assuredly Prince Bull. But appearances, as we all know, are not always to be trusted, far from it. And if they had led you to this conclusion respecting Prince Bull, they would have led you wrong, as they have often led me. For this good prince had two sharp thorns in his pillow, two hard knobs in his crown, two heavy loads on his mind, two unbridled nightmares in his sleep two rocks ahead of his course. He could not by any means get servants to suit him, and he had a tyrannical old godmother whose name was Tape. She was a fairy, this Tape, and was a bright red all over. She was disgustingly prim and formal, and could never bend herself a hair's breadth this way or that way out of her naturally crooked shape. But she was very potent in her wicked art, she could stop the fastest thing in the world, change the strongest thing into the weakest, and the most useful into the most useless. To do this, she had only to put her cold hand upon it, and repeat her own name, Tape. Then it withered away. At the court of Prince Bull, at least I don't mean literally at his court, because he was a very genteel prince, and readily yielded to his godmother, when she always reserved that for his hereditary lords and ladies. In the dominions of Prince Bull, among the great mass of the community who were called, in the language of that polite country, the mobs and the snobs, were a number of very ingenious men, who were always busy with some invention or other, for promoting the prosperity of the prince's subjects, and augmenting the prince's power. But whenever they submitted their models for the prince's approval, 
his godmother stepped forward, laid her hand upon them, and said, Tape. Hence it came to pass that when any particularly good discovery was made, the discoverer usually carried it off to some other prince in foreign parts who had no old godmother who said tape. This was not on the whole an advantageous state of things for Prince Bull, to the best of my understanding. The worst of it was that Prince Bull had, in course of years, lapped into such a state of subjection to this unlucky godmother that he never made any serious effort to rid himself of her tyranny. I have said this was the worst of it, but there I was wrong, because there is a worse consequence still behind. The prince's numerous family became so downright sick and tired of tape, that when they should have helped the prince out of the difficulties into which that evil creature led him, they fell into a dangerous habit of moodily keeping away from him in an impassive and indifferent manner, as though they had quite forgotten that no harm could happen to the prince, their father, without its inevitably affecting themselves. Such was the aspect of affairs at the court of Prince Bull, when this great prince found it necessary to go to war with Prince Bear. He had been for some time very doubtful of his servants, who, besides being indolent and addicted to enriching their families at his expense, domineered over him dreadfully, threatening to discharge themselves if they were found the least fault with, pretending that they had done a wonderful amount of work when they had done nothing, making the most unmeaning speeches that ever were heard in the prince's name, and uniformly showing themselves to be very inefficient indeed. Though that some of them had excellent characters from previous situations is not to be denied. Well, Prince Bull called his servants together, and said to them one and all, Send out my army against Prince Bear. Clothe it, arm it, feed it. Provide it with all necessaries and contingencies, and I will pay the piper. Do your duty, my brave troops, said the Prince, and do it well, and I would pour my treasure out like water to defray the cost. Whoever heard me complain of money well laid out? which indeed he had reason for saying, inasmuch as he was well known to be a truly generous and munificent prince. When the servants heard these words, they sent out the army against Prince Bear, and they set the army tailors to work, and the army provision merchants, and the makers of guns both great and small, and the gunpowder makers, and the makers of ball, shell, and shot. And they bought up all manner of stores and ships, without troubling their heads about the prince, and appeared to be so busy that the good prince rubbed his hands and, using a favourite expression of his, said, It's all right. But, while they were thus employed, the prince's godmother, who was a great favourite with those servants, looked in upon them continually all day long, and whenever she popped in her head at the door, said, How do you do, my children? What? Are you doing how? Official business, godmother. Oho, says the wicked fairy. Tape. And then the business all went wrong, whatever it was, and the servants' heads became so addled and muddled that they thought they were doing wonders. 
Now, this was very bad conduct on the part of the vicious old nuisance, and she ought to have been strangled, even if she had stopped here. But she didn't stop here, as you shall learn. For a number of the prince's subjects, being very fond of the prince's army, who were the bravest of men, assembled together and provided all manner of eatables and drinkables, and books to read, and clothes to wear, and tobacco to smoke, and candles to burn, and nailed them up in great packing cases, and put them aboard a great many ships to be carried out to that brave army in the cold and inclement country where they were fighting Prince Bear. Then up comes this wicked fairy as the ships were weighing anchor and says, How do you do, my children? What are you doing here? We are going with all these comforts to the army, godmother. Oh, says she. A pleasant voyage, my darlings. Tape. And from that time forth, those enchanting ships went sailing against wind and tide and rhyme and reason round and round the world, and whenever they touched any port, were ordered off immediately, and could never deliver their cargoes anywhere. This, again, was very bad conduct on the part of the vicious old nuisance, and she ought to have been strangled for it, if she had done nothing worse. But she did something worse still, as you shall learn. For she got astride of an official broomstick, and muttered as a spell these two sentences. On Her Majesty's service. And, I have the honour to be, sir, your most obedient servant and presently alighted in the cold and inclement country where the army of Prince Bull were encamped to fight the army of Prince Bear. On the seashore of that country, she found piled together a number of houses for the army to live in, and a quantity of provisions for the army to live upon, and a quantity of clothes for the army to wear. While, sitting in the mud gazing at them, were a group of officers as red to look at as the wicked old woman herself. So she said to one of them, Who are you, my darling, and how do you do? I am the Quartermaster General's department, Godmother, and I am pretty well. Then she said to another, Who are you, my darling, and how do you do? I am the Commissariat Department, Godmother, and I am pretty well. And she said to another, and who are you, my darling? And how do you do? I am the head of the medical department, godmother, and I am pretty well. And then she said to some gentlemen, scented with lavender, who kept themselves at a great distance from the rest, And who are you, my pretty pets? And how do you do? And they answered, we uh, are the uh, staff uh, department, Godmother, and we are very well indeed. I am delighted to see you all, my beauties, said this wicked old fairy. Tape. Upon that, the houses, clothes and provisions all mouldered away, and the soldiers who were sound fell sick, and the soldiers who were sick died miserably, and the noble army of Prince Bull 
perished. When the dismal news of this great loss was carried to the prince, he suspected his godmother very much indeed, but he knew that his servants must have kept company with the malicious beldame, and must have given way to her. And therefore he resolved to turn those servants out of their places. So he called to him a roebuck, who had the gift of speech, and he said, Good roebuck, tell them they must go. So the good roebuck delivered his message, so like a man that you might have supposed him to be nothing but a man, and they were turned out, but not without warning, for that they had had a long time. And now comes the most extraordinary part of the history of this prince. When he had turned out those servants, of course he wanted others. What was his astonishment to find that in all his dominions, which contained no less than twenty-seven millions of people, there were not about five-and-twenty servants altogether. They were so lofty about it, too, that instead of discussing whether they should hire themselves as servants to Prince Bull, they turned things topsy-turvy, and considered whether, as a favour, they should hire Prince Bull to be their master. While they were arguing this point among themselves, quite at their leisure, the wicked old red fairy was incessantly going up and down, knocking at the doors of twelve of the oldest of the five-and-twenty, who were the oldest inhabitants in all that country, and whose united ages amounted to one thousand, saying, "'Will you hire Prince Bull for your master? "'Will you hire Prince Bull for your master?' "'To which one answered, "'I won't if next door will.' "'And another, "'I won't if over the way does.' "'And another, "'I can't if he, she, or they, "'might, could, would, or should.' "'And all this time Prince Bull's affairs "'were going to rack and ruin.' At last, Prince Bull, in the height of his perplexity, assumed a thoughtful face, as if he were struck by an entirely new idea. The wicked old fairy, seeing this, was at his elbow directly and said, How do you do, my prince? And what are you thinking of? I am thinking, godmother, that among all the seven and twenty millions of my subjects who have never been in service, there are men of intellect and business who have made me very famous both among my friends and enemies. I truly, says the fairy. I truly, says the prince. And what then? says the fairy. Why then, says he, since the regular old class of servants do so ill, are so hard to get, and carry it with so high a hand, Perhaps I might try to make good servants of some of these. The words had no sooner passed his lips than she returned chuckling. You think so, do you? Indeed, my prince. Tape. Thereupon he directly forgot what he was thinking of and cried out lamentably to the old servants. Oh, do come and hire your poor old master. Pray do, on any terms. And this, for the present, finishes the story of Prince Bull. I wish I could wind it up by saying that he lived happy ever afterwards. But I cannot in my conscience do so. 
for with tape at his elbow and his estranged children fatally repelled by her from coming near him i do not to tell you the plain truth believe in the possibility of such an end to it end of prince bull the poor relations story from some christmas stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by michelle eaton charles dickens 200th anniversary collection volume 1 the poor relations story from some christmas stories by charles dickens he was very reluctant to take precedence of so many respected members of the family by beginning the round of stories they were to relate as they sat in a goodly circle by the christmas fire and he modestly suggested that it would be more correct if john our esteemed host whose health he begged to drink would have the kindness to begin for as to himself he said he was so little used to lead the way that really but as they all cried out here that he must begin and agreed with one voice that he might could would and should begin he left off rubbing his hands and took his legs out from under his armchair and did begin i have no doubt said the poor relation that i shall surprise the assembled members of our family and particularly john our esteemed host to whom we are so much indebted for the great hospitality with which he has this day entertained us by the confession i am going to make but if you do me the honour to be surprised at anything that falls from a person so unimportant in the family as I am, I can only say that I shall be scrupulously accurate in all I relate. I am not what I am supposed to be. I am quite another thing. Perhaps before I go further, I had better glance at what I am supposed to be. It is supposed, unless I mistake, the assembled members of our family will correct me if I do, which is very likely, here the poor relation looked mildly about him for contradiction that i am nobody's enemy but my own that i never met with any particular success in anything that i failed in business because i was unbusinesslike and credulous in not being prepared for the interested designs of my partner that i failed in love because i was ridiculously trustful in thinking it impossible that christiana could deceive me that I failed in my expectations from my uncle Chill, on account of not being as sharp as he could have wished in worldly matters, that through life I have been rather put upon and disappointed in a general way, that I am at present a bachelor of between fifty-nine and sixty years of age, living on a limited income in the form of a quarterly allowance, to which I see that John, our esteemed host, wishes me to make no further allusion." The supposition as to my present pursuits and habits is to the following effect. I live in a lodging in the Clapham Road, a very clean back room in a very respectable house, where I am expected not to be at home in the daytime unless poorly, and which I usually leave in the morning at nine o'clock, on pretence of going to business. I take my breakfast, my roll and butter, and my half pint of coffee at the old established coffee shop near Westminster Bridge, and then I go into the city, I don't know why, and sit in Garraway's coffee-house, and on change, and walk about, and look into a few offices and counting-houses, where some of my relations or acquaintance are so good as to tolerate me, and where I stand by the fire if the weather happens to be cold. 
I get through the day in this way until five o'clock, and then I dine at a cost on the average of one and three pence. Having still a little money to spend on my evening's entertainment, I look into the old established coffee shop as I go home and take my cup of tea and perhaps my bit of toast. So, as the large hand of the clock makes its way round to the morning hour again, I make my way round to the Clapham Road again and go to bed when I get to my lodging, fire being expensive and being objected to by the family on account of its giving trouble and making a dirt. Sometimes one of my relations or acquaintances is so obliging as to ask me to dinner. Those are holiday occasions, and then I generally walk in the park. I am a solitary man, and seldom walk with anybody. Not that I am avoided because I am shabby, for I am not at all shabby, having always a very good suit of black on, or rather Oxford mixture, which has the appearance of black and wears much better. But I have got into a habit of speaking low, and being rather silent, and my spirits are not high, and I am sensible that I am not an attractive companion. The only exception to this general rule is the child of my first cousin, little Frank. I have a particular affection for that child, and he takes very kindly to me. He is a diffident boy by nature, and in a crowd he is soon run over, as I may say, and forgotten. He and I, however, get on exceedingly well. I have a fancy that the poor child will in time succeed to my peculiar position in the family. We talk but little, still. We understand each other. We walk about, hand in hand, and without much speaking he knows what I mean, and I know what he means. When he was very little indeed, I used to take him to the windows of the toy shop and show him the toys inside. It is surprising how soon he found out that I would have made him a great many presents if I had been in circumstances to do it. Little Frank and I go and look at the outside of the monument. He is very fond of the monument, and at the bridges, and at all the sites that are free. On two of my birthdays we have dined on Ella Mode beef and gone at half price to the play and been deeply interested. I was once walking with him in Lombard Street, which we often visit on account of my having mentioned to him that there are great riches there. He is very fond of Lombard Street. When a gentleman said to me as he passed by, Sir, your little son has dropped his glove. I assure you, if you will excuse my remarking on so trivial a circumstance, this accidental mention of the child as mine quite touched my heart and brought the foolish tears into my eyes. When little Frank is sent to school in the country, I shall be very much at a loss what to do with myself, but I have the intention of walking down there once a month and seeing him on a half-holiday. I am told he will then be at play upon the heath, and if my visit should be objected to as unsettling the child, I can see him from a distance without his seeing me, and walk back again. His mother comes of a highly genteel family, and rather disapproves. I am aware of our being too much together. I know that I am not calculated to improve his retiring disposition, but I think he would miss me beyond the feeling of the moment if we were wholly separated. When I die in the Clapham Road, I shall not leave much more in this world than I shall take out of it. I happen to have a miniature of a bright-faced boy with a curling head and an open shirt frill waving down his bosom. My mother had it taken for me, but I can't believe that it was ever like, and which I shall beg may be given to Frank. I have written my dear boy a little letter with it, in which I have told him that I felt very sorry to part from him, though bound to confess that I knew no reason why I should remain here. 
I have given him some short advice, the best in my power, to take warning of the consequences of being nobody's enemy but his own, and I have endeavoured to comfort him for what I fear he will consider a bereavement, by pointing out to him that I was only a superfluous something to every one but him, and that having by some means failed to find a place in this great assembly, I am better out of it. Such, said the poor relation, clearing his throat and beginning to speak a little louder, is the general impression about me. Now, it is a remarkable circumstance which forms the aim and purpose of my story, that this is all wrong. This is not my life, and these are not my habits. I do not even live in the Clapham Road. Comparatively speaking, I am very seldom there. I reside mostly in a... I am almost ashamed to say the word. It sounds so full of pretension. In a castle. I do not mean that it is an old baronial habitation, but still it is a building always known to everyone by the name of a castle. In it, I preserve the particulars of my history. They run thus. It was when I first took John Spatter, who had been my clerk, into partnership, and when I was still a young man of not more than five and twenty, residing in the house of my uncle Chill, from whom I had considerable expectations, that I ventured to propose to Christiana. I had loved Christiana a long time. She was very beautiful and very winning in all respects. I rather mistrusted her widowed mother, who I feared was of a plotting and mercenary turn of mind, but I thought as well of her as I could for Christiana's sake. I never had loved anyone but Christiana, and she had been all the world, and oh, far more than all the world to me from our childhood. Christiana accepted me with her mother's consent, and I was rendered very happy indeed. My life at my Uncle Chill's was of a spare, dull kind, and my garret chamber was as dull and bare and cold as an upper prison room in some stern northern fortress. But having Christiana's love, I wanted nothing upon earth. I would not have changed my lot with any human being. Avarice was unhappily my Uncle Chill's master vice. Though he was rich, he pinched and scraped and clutched and lived miserably. As Christiana had no fortune, I was for some time a little fearful of confessing our engagement to him. But at length I wrote him a letter, saying how it all truly was. I put it into his hand one night on going to bed. As I came downstairs next morning, shivering in the cold December air, colder in my uncle's unwarmed house than in the street, where the winter sun did sometimes shine, and which was at all events enlivened by cheerful faces and voices passing along, I carried a heavy heart towards the long, low breakfast room in which my uncle sat. It was a large room with a small fire, and there was a great bay window in it which the rain had marked in the night, as if with the tears of houseless people. It stared upon a raw yard with a cracked stone pavement and some rusted iron railings half uprooted, whence an ugly outbuilding that had once been a dissecting room, in the time of the great surgeon who had mortgaged the house to my uncle, stared at it. We rose so early always that at that time of the year we breakfasted by candlelight. When I went into the room, my uncle was so contracted by the cold and so huddled together in his chair behind the one dim candle that I did not see him until I was close to the table. As I held out my hand to him, he caught up his stick. Being infirm, he always walked about the house with a stick, 
and made a blow at me and said, "'You fool!' "'Uncle,' I returned, "'I didn't expect you to be so angry as this.' "'Nor had I expected it, though he was a hard and angry old man.' "'You didn't expect,' said he. "'When did you ever expect? "'When did you ever calculate or look forward, you contemptible dog?' "'These are hard words, uncle.' "'Hard words? "'Feathers to pelt such an idiot as you with,' said he. "'Here, Betsy Snap, look at him.' "'Betsy Snap was a withered, hard-favoured yellow old woman, "'our only domestic, always employed at this time of the morning "'in rubbing my uncle's legs. "'As my uncle adjured her to look at me, "'he put his lean grip on the crown of her head. "'She, kneeling beside him, and turned her face towards me, an involuntary thought connecting them both with the dissecting room, as it must often have been in the surgeon's time, passed across my mind in the midst of my anxiety. "'Look at the snivelling milksop,' said my uncle. "'Look at the baby. This is the gentleman who people say is nobody's enemy but his own. This is the gentleman who can't say no. This is the gentleman who was making such large profits in his business that he must needs take a partner t'other day. This is the gentleman who's going to marry a wife without a penny, and who falls into the hands of Jezebels who are speculating on my death. I knew now how great my uncle's rage was, for nothing short of his being almost beside himself would have induced him to utter that concluding word, which he held in such repugnance, that it was never spoken or hinted at before him on any account. On my death, he repeated, as if he were defying me by defying his own abhorrence of the word. On my death, death, death! But I'll spoil the speculation. Eat your last under this roof, you feeble wretch, and may it choke you. You may suppose that I had not much appetite for the breakfast to which I was bidden in these terms, but I took my accustomed seat. I saw that I was repudiated henceforth by my uncle. Still I could bear that very well, possessing Christiana's heart. He emptied his basin of bread and milk as usual, only that he took it on his knees with his chair turned away from the table where I sat. When he had done, he carefully snuffed out the candle, and the cold, slate-coloured, miserable day looked in upon us. Now, Mr. Michael, said he, before we part, I should like to have a word with these ladies in your presence. As you will, sir, I returned. "'but you deceive yourself and wrong us cruelly "'if you suppose that there is any feeling at stake in this contract "'but pure, disinterested, faithful love.' "'To this he only replied, "'You lie, and not one other word.' "'We went through half-thawed snow and half-frozen rain "'to the house where Christiana and her mother lived. "'My uncle knew them very well. "'They were sitting at their breakfast "'and were surprised to see us at that hour.' "'Your servant, ma'am,' said my uncle to the mother. "'You divine the purpose of my visit, I dare say, ma'am. "'I understand there is a world of pure, disinterested, faithful love "'cooped up here. "'I am happy to bring it all at once to make it complete. "'I bring you your son-in-law, ma'am, and you, your husband, miss. "'The gentleman is a perfect stranger to me, "'but I wish him joy of his wise bargain. "'He snarled at me as he went out, and I never saw him again.' It is altogether a mistake, continued the poor relation, to suppose that my dear Christiana, over-persuaded and influenced by her mother, married a rich man, 
the dirt from whose carriage wheels is often in these changed times thrown upon me as she rides by no no she married me the way we came to be married rather sooner than we intended was this i took a frugal lodging and was saving and planning for her sake when one day she spoke to me with great earnestness and said my dear michael i have given you my heart i have said that i loved you and i have pledged myself to be your wife i am as much yours through all changes of good and evil as if we had been married on the day when such words passed between us i know you well and know that if we should be separated and our union broken off your whole life would be shadowed and all that might even now be stronger in your character for the conflict with the world would then be weakened to the shadow of what it is god help me christiana said i you speak the truth michael she said putting her hand in mine in all maidenly devotion let us keep apart no longer it is but for me to say that i can live contented upon such means as you have and i well know you are happy i say so from my heart strive no more alone let us strive together my dear michael it is not right that i should keep secret from you what you do not suspect but what distresses my whole life my mother without considering that what you have lost you have lost for me and on the assurance of my faith sets her heart on riches and urges another suit upon me to my misery i cannot bear this for to bear it is to be untrue to you i would rather share your struggles than look on i want no better home than you can give me i know that you will aspire and labour with a higher courage if i am wholly yours and let it be so when you will i was blessed indeed that day and a new world opened to me we were married in a very little while and i took my wife to our happy home that was the beginning of the residence i have spoken of the castle we have ever since inhabited together dates from that time all our children have been born in it our first child now married was a little girl whom we called christiana her son is so like little frank that i hardly know which is which the current impression as to my partner's dealings with me is also quite erroneous he did not begin to treat me coldly as a poor simpleton when my uncle and i so fatally quarrelled nor did he afterwards gradually possess himself of our business and edge me out on the contrary he behaved to me with the utmost good faith and honour matters between us took this turn on the day of my separation from my uncle and even before the arrival at our counting-house of my trunks which he sent after me not carriage paid i went down to our room of business on our little wharf overlooking the river and there i told john spatter what had happened john did not say in reply that rich old relatives were palpable facts and that love and sentiment were moonshine and fiction he addressed me thus michael said john we were at school together and i generally had the knack of getting on better than you and making a higher reputation you had john i returned although said john i borrowed your books and lost them borrowed your pocket money and never repaid it got you to buy my damaged knives at a higher price than i had given for them new and to own to the windows that i had broken all not worth mentioning john spatter said i but certainly true when you were first established in this infant business which promises to thrive so well pursued john i came to you in my search for almost any employment and you made me your clerk still not worth mentioning my dear john spatter said i still 
equally true, and finding that I had a good head for business, and that I was really useful to the business, you did not like to retain me in that capacity, and thought it an act of justice soon to make me your partner. Still less worth mentioning than any of those other little circumstances you have recalled, John Spatter, said I, for I was, and am, sensible of your merits and my deficiencies. Now, my good friend, said John, drawing my arm through his, as he had had a habit of doing at school, while two vessels outside the windows of our counting-house, which were shaped like the stern windows of a ship, went lightly down the river with the tide, as John and I might then be sailing away in company, and in trust and confidence on our voyage of life. Let there, under these friendly circumstances, be a right understanding between us. You are too easy, Michael. You are nobody's enemy but your own. If I were to give you that damaging character among our connection, with a shrug and a shake of the head and a sigh, and if I were further to abuse the trust you place in me, but you never will abuse it at all, John, I observed. Never, he said. Never, said he. But I am putting a case, I say, and if I were further to abuse that trust by keeping this piece of our common affairs in the dark, and this other piece in the light, and again this other piece in the twilight, and so on, I should strengthen my strength, and weaken your weaknesses day by day, until at last I found myself on the high road to fortune, and you left behind on some bare common, a hopeless number of miles out of the way. Exactly so, said I. To prevent this, Michael, said John Spatter, or the remotest chance of this, there must be perfect openness between us. Nothing must be concealed, and we must have but one interest. My dear John Spatter, I assured him. That is precisely what I mean. And when you are too easy, pursued John, his face glowing with friendship, you must allow me to prevent that imperfection in your nature from being taken advantage of by any one. You must not expect me to humour it. My dear John Spatter, I interrupted, I don't expect you to humour it. I want to correct it. And I too, said John. Exactly so, cried I. We both have the same end in view, and honourably seeking it, and fully trusting one another, and having but one interest, ours will be a prosperous and happy partnership. I am sure of it, returned John Spatter, and we shook hands most affectionately. I took John home to my castle, and we had a very happy day. Our partnership throve well. My friend and partner supplied what I wanted, as I had foreseen that he would, and by improving both the business and myself, amply acknowledged any little rise in life to which I had helped him. I am not, said the poor relation, looking at the fire as he slowly rubbed his hands, very rich, for I never cared to be that, but I have enough, and I am above all moderate wants and anxieties. My castle is not a splendid place, but it is very comfortable, and it has a warm and cheerful air, and it's quite a picture of home. Our eldest girl, who is very like her mother, married John Spatter's eldest son. Our two families are closely united in other ties of attachment. It is very pleasant of an evening, when we are all assembled together, which frequently happens, and when John and I talk over old times, and the one interest there has always been between us. I really do not know, in my castle, what loneliness is. Some of our children or grandchildren are always about it, and the young voices of my descendants are delightful. Oh, how delightful to me to hear. My dearest and most devoted wife, ever faithful, ever loving, 
ever helpful and sustaining and consoling, is the priceless blessing of my house, from whom all its other blessings spring. We are rather a musical family, and when Christiana sees me at any time, a little weary or depressed, she steals to the piano and sings a gentle air she used to sing when we were first betrothed. So weak a man am I, that I cannot bear to hear it from any other source. They played it once at the theatre, when I was there with little Frank, and the child said, wondering, "'Cousin Michael, whose hot tears are these that have fallen on my hand? Such is my castle, and such are the real particulars of my life therein preserved. I often take little Frank home there. He is very welcome to my grandchildren, and they play together. At this time of year, the Christmas and New Year time, I am seldom out of my castle.' for the associations of the season seem to hold me there, and the precepts of the season seem to teach me that it is well to be there. And the castle is, observed a grave, kind voice among the company. Yes, my castle, said the poor relation, shaking his head as he still looked at the fire, is in the air. John, our esteemed host, suggests its situation accurately. My castle is in the air. I have done. Will you be so good as to pass the story? End of the Poor Relations Story from Some Christmas Stories Recording by Michelle Eaton Speech, February 1842, Boston This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1. Speech, February 1842, Boston, by Charles Dickens. At dinner given to Mr. Dickens by the young men of Boston, the company consisted of about 200, among whom were George Bancroft, Washington Alston, and Oliver Wendell Holmes. The toast of health, happiness, and a hearty welcome to Charles Dickens, having been proposed by the chairman, Mr. Quincy, and received with great applause, Mr. Dickens responded with the following address. Gentlemen, if you had given this splendid entertainment to anyone else in the whole wide world, if I were to-night to exult in the triumph of my dearest friend, if I stood here upon my defense to repel any unjust attack, to appeal as a stranger to your generosity and kindness as the freest people on the earth, I could, putting some restraint upon myself, stand among you as self-possessed and unmoved as I should be alone in my own room in England. But when I have the echoes of your cordial greeting ringing in my ears, when I see your kind faces beaming a welcome so warm and earnest as never man had, I feel it is my nature, so vanquished and subdued, that I have hardly fortitude enough to thank you. If your president, instead of pouring forth that delightful mixture of humor and pathos which you have just heard, had been but a caustic, ill-natured man, if he had only been a dull one, if I could only have doubted or distrusted him or you, I should have had my wits at my fingers' ends, and using them could have held you at arm's length. But you have given me no such opportunity. You take advantage of me in the tenderest point. You give me no chance of playing at company or holding you at a distance, but flock about me like a host of brothers, and make this place like home. Indeed, gentlemen, indeed, if it be natural and allowable for each of us, on his own hearth, to express his thoughts in the most homely fashion, and to appear in his plainest garb, I have a fair claim upon you to let me do so to-night, for you have made my home an Aladdin's palace. 
you fold so tenderly within your breasts that common household lamp in which my feeble fire is all enshrined and at which my flickering torch is lighted up that straight my household gods take wing and are transported there and whereas it is written of that fairy structure that it never moved without two shocks one when it rose and one when it settled down i can say of mine that however sharp a tug it took to pluck it from its native ground it struck at once an easy and a deep and lasting root into this soil and loved it as its own i can say more of it and say with truth that long before it moved or had a chance of moving its master perhaps from some secret sympathy between its timbers and a certain stately tree that had its being hereabout and spread its broad branches far and wide dreamed by day and night for years of setting foot upon this shore and breathing this pure air and trust me gentlemen that if i had wandered here unknowing and unknown i would if i know my own heart have come with all my sympathies clustering as richly about this land and people with all my sense of justice as keenly alive to their high claims on every man who loves god's image with all my energies as fully bent on judging for myself and speaking out and telling in my sphere the truth as i do now when you rain down your welcomes on my head our president has alluded to those writings which have been my occupation for some years past and you have received his allusions in a manner which assures me if i needed any such assurance that we are old friends in the spirit and have been in close communion for a long time it is not easy for a man to speak of his own books i dare say that few persons have been more interested in mine than i and if it be a general principle in nature that a lover's love is blind and that a mother's love is blind i believe it may be said of an author's attachment to the creatures of his own imagination that it is a perfect model of constancy and devotion and is the blindest of all but the objects and purposes i have had in view are very plain and simple and may be easily told i have always had and always shall have an earnest and true desire to contribute as far as in me lies to the common stock of healthful cheerfulness and enjoyment i have always had and always shall have an invincible repugnance to that mole-eyed philosophy which loves the darkness and winks and scowls in the light i believe that virtue shows quite as well in rags and patches as she does in purple and fine linen i believe that she and every beautiful object in external nature claims some sympathy in the breast of the poorest man who breaks his scanty loaf of daily bread i believe that she goes barefoot as well as shod i believe that she dwells rather oftener in alleys and byways than she does in courts and palaces and that it is good and pleasant and profitable to track her out and follow her i believe that to lay one's hand upon some of those rejected ones whom the world has too long forgotten and too often misused and to say to the proudest and most thoughtless these creatures have the same elements and capacities of goodness as yourselves they are moulded in the same form and made of the same clay and though ten times worse than you may in having retained anything of their original nature amidst the trials and distresses of their condition be really ten times better i believe that to do this is to pursue a worthy and not useless vocation gentlemen that you think so too your fervent greeting sufficiently assures me that this feeling is alive in the old world as well as in the new no man should know better than i i who have found such wide and ready sympathy in my own dear land 
that in expressing it we are but treading in the steps of those great master spirits who have gone before, we know by reference to all the bright examples in our literature, from Shakespeare downward. There is one other point connected with the labors, if I may call them so, that you hold in such generous esteem, to which I cannot help adverting. I cannot help expressing the delight, the more than happiness it was to me to find so strong an interest awakened on this side of the water, in favor of that little heroine of mine, to whom your president has made allusion, who died in her youth. I had letters about that child, in England, from the dwellers in log-houses among the morasses, and swamps, and densest forests, and deep solitudes of the far west. Many a sturdy hand, hard with the axe and spade, and browned by the summer sun, has taken up the pen, and written to me a little history of domestic joy or sorrow, always coupled, I am proud to say, with something of interest in that little tale, or some comfort or happiness derived from it. And my correspondent has always addressed me, not as a writer of books for sale, resident some four or five thousand miles away, but as a friend to whom he might freely impart the joys and sorrows of his own fireside. Many a mother, I could reckon them now by dozens, not by units, has done the like, and has told me how she lost such a child at such a time, and where she lay buried, and how good she was, and how, in this or that respect, she resembles Nell. I do assure you that no circumstance of my life has given me one hundredth part of the gratification I have derived from this source. I was wavering at the time whether or not to wind up my clock and come and see this country, and this decided me. Footnote. Master Humphrey's Clock, under which title the two novels of Barnaby Rudge and the Old Curiosity Shop originally appeared. Editor. End footnote. I felt as if it were a positive duty, as if I were bound to pack up my clothes and come and see my friends, and even now I have such an odd sensation in connection with these things that you have no chance of spoiling me. I feel as though we were agreeing, as indeed we are, if we substitute for fictitious characters the classes from which they are drawn, about third parties in whom we had a common interest. At every new act of kindness on your part, I say to myself, that's for Oliver. I should not wonder if that was meant for Smike. I have no doubt that is intended for Nell. And so I become a much happier, certainly, but a more sober and retiring man than ever I was before. Gentlemen, talking of my friends in America brings me back, naturally, and of course, to you. Coming back to you, and being thereby reminded of the pleasure we have in store in hearing the gentlemen who sit about me, I arrive by the easiest, though not by the shortest course in the world, at the end of what I have to say. But before I sit down, there is one topic on which I am desirous to lay particular stress. It has, or should have, a strong interest for us all since to its literature every country must look for one great means of refining and improving its people, and one great source of national pride and honor. You have in America great writers, great writers, who will live in all time, and are as familiar to our lips as household words. Deriving, as they all do in a greater or less degree in their several walks, their inspiration from the stupendous country that gave them birth, they diffuse a better knowledge of it, and a higher love for it, all over the civilized world. I take leave to say, in the presence of some of these gentlemen, that I hope the time is not far distant when they, in America, will receive of right some substantial profit in return in England from their labors, and when we, in England, shall receive some substantial profit in return in America for ours. 
Pray do not misunderstand me. Securing to myself from day to day the means of an honorable subsistence, I would rather have the affectionate regard of my fellow men than I would have heaps and mines of gold. But the two things do not seem to me incompatible. They cannot be, for nothing good is incompatible with justice. There must be an international arrangement in this respect. England has done her part, and I am confident that the time is not far distant when America will do hers. It becomes the character of a great country. Firstly, because it is justice. Secondly, because without it you never can have and keep a literature of your own. Gentlemen, I thank you with feelings of gratitude such as are not often awakened and can never be expressed. As I understand it to be the pleasant custom here to finish with a toast, I would beg to give you America and England, and may they never have any division but the Atlantic between them. End of speech, February 1842, Boston. Read by Laurie Walden. Barbox Brothers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1 Barbox Brothers by Charles Dickens Part 1 God, what place is this? Mugby Junction, sir. A windy place? Yes, it mostly is, sir. And looks comfortless indeed. Yes, it generally does, sir. Is it a rainy night still? Poor, sir. Open the door. I'll get out. You'll have, sir, said the guard, listening with drops of wet, and looking at the tearful face of his watch by the light of his lantern as the traveller descended. Three minutes, sir. More, I think, for I'm not going on. Don't you have the through ticket, sir? As I have but I shall sacrifice the rest of it. I want my luggage. Please to come to the van and point it out, sir. Be good enough to look very sharp, sir. Not a moment to spare. The guard hurried to the luggage van, and the traveller hurried after him. The guard got into it, and the traveller looked into it. Those two large black portmanteaus in the corner where your light shines. Those are mine. Name upon them, sir? Barbox Brothers. Stand clear, sir, if you please. One, two, right. Lamp waved. Signal lights ahead already changing. Shriek from engine. Train gone. Mugby Junction, said the traveller, pulling up the woollen muffler round his throat with both hands. At three o'clock of a tempestuous morning. So, he spoke to himself, there was no one else to speak to. Perhaps, though there had been any one else to speak to, he would have preferred to speak to himself. Speaking to himself, he spoke to a man within five years of fifty either way, who had turned grey too soon, like a neglected fire, a man of pondering habit, brooding carriage of the head, and suppressed internal voice, a man with many indications on him of having been much alone. 
He stood unnoticed on the dreary platform, except by the rain and the wind. Those two vigilant assistants made a rush at him. "'Very well,' said he, yielding. "'It signifies nothing to me to what quarter I turn my face.' Thus, at Mugby Junction, at past three o'clock of a tempestuous morning, the traveller went where the weather drove him. Not but what he could make a stand when he was so minded, for coming to the end of the roof shelter, it is of considerable extent at Mugby Junction, and looking out upon the dark night, with a yet darker spirit wing of storm beating its wild way through it, he faced about, and held his own as ruggedly in the difficult direction as he had held it in the easier one. Thus, with steady step, the traveller went up and down, up and down, up and down, seeking nothing, and finding it. A place replete with shadowy shapes, this Mugby Junction, in the black hours of the four-and-twenty. Mysterious goods trains, covered with palls, and gliding on like weird funerals, conveying themselves guiltily away from the presence of the few lighted lamps, as if their freight had come to a secret and unlawful end. Half-miles of coal pursuing in a detective manner, following when they lead, stopping when they stop, backing when they back. Red-hot embers showering out upon the ground, down this dark avenue and down the other, as if torturing fires were being raked clear. Concurrently, shrieks and groans and grinds invading the ear, as if the tortured were at the height of their suffering. Iron-barred cages full of cattle, jangling by midway, the drooping beasts with horns entangled, eyes frozen with terror, and mouths too. At least they have long icicles, or what seems so, hanging from their lips. Unknown languages in the air, conspiring in red, green, and white characters. An earthquake accompanied with thunder and lightning, going up express to London. Now all quiet, all rusty, wind and rain in possession, lamps extinguished, Mugby Junction dead and indistinct, with its robe drawn over its head like Caesar. Now, too, as the belated traveller plodded up and down, a shadowy train went by him in the gloom, which was no other than the train of a life. From whatsoever intangible deep-cutting or dark tunnel it emerged, here it came, unsummoned and unannounced, stealing upon him, and passing away into obscurity. Here mournfully went by a child who had never had a childhood or known a parent, inseparable from a youth with a bitter sense of his namelessness, coupled to a man the enforced business of whose best years had been distasteful and oppressive, linked to an ungrateful friend, dragging after him a woman once beloved, Attendant, with many a clank and wrench, were lumbering cares, dark meditations, huge dim disappointments, monotonous years, a long jarring line of the discords of a solitary and unhappy existence. "'Yours, sir?' The traveller recalled his eyes from the waste into which they had been staring, and fell back a step or so under the abruptness, and perhaps the chance appropriateness, of the question. "'Oh, my thoughts were not here for the moment. Yes, yes, those two portmanteaus are mine. Are you a porter?' 
"'On Porter's wages, sir, but I am Lamps.' The traveller looked a little confused. "'Who did you say you are?' "'Lamps, sir,' showing an oily cloth in his hand as further explanation. Uh, "'Surely, surely. Is there any hotel or tavern here?' "'Not exactly here, sir. There is a refreshment room here, but—' Lamps, with a mighty serious look, gave his head a warning roll that plainly added— but it's a blessed circumstance for you that it's not open. Yeah, you couldn't recommend it, I see, if it was available. Ask your pardon, sir, if it was. Open. Ain't my place as a paid servant of the company to give my opinion on any of the company's topics. He pronounced it more like toothpicks. Beyond Lambile and Cottons returned Lamps, in a confidential tone. "'But speaking as a man, I wouldn't recommend my father, if he were to come to life again, to go and try how he'd be treated at the refreshment room. Not speaking as a man, no, I would not.' The traveller nodded conviction. "'I suppose I can put up in the town. There is a town here.' For the traveller, though a stay-at-home compared with most travellers, had been, like many others, carried on the steam winds and the iron tides through that junction before, without having ever, as one might say, gone ashore there. "'Oh, yes, there's a town, sir. Anyways, there's town enough to put up in, but—' Following the glance of the other at his luggage, "'This is a very dead time of the night with us, sir. The deadest time. I might almost call it our deadest and buried this time.' "'No porters about.' "'Well, sir, you see,' returned Lamps, confidential again, "'they in general goes off with a gas. "'That's how it is. "'And they seem to have overlooked you "'through your walking unto the further end of the platform. "'But in about twelve minutes or so she may be up.' "'Who may be up?' "'The three-forty-two, sir. "'She goes off in a ziding till up X passes.' And then she here an air of hopeful vagueness pervaded lamps does all as lays in her power i doubt if i comprehend the arrangement i doubt if anybody do sir she's a parliamentary sir and you see a parliamentary or a skirmishin do you mean an excursion that's it sir a parliamentary or a skirmishin she mostly does go off into a zidin. But when she can get a chance, she's whistled out of it, and she's whistled up into doing all as... Lamps again wore the air of a mighty sanguine man who hoped for the best. All as lays in her power. He then explained that porters on duty being required to be in attendance on the parliamentary matron in question would doubtless turn up with the gas. In the meantime... If the gentleman would not very much object to the smell of lamp-oil, and would accept the warmth of his little room, the gentleman, by this time very cold, instantly closed with the proposal. A greasy little cabin it was, suggestive to the sense of smell of a cabin in a whaler. But there was a bright fire burning in its rusty grate, and on the floor there stood a wooden stand of newly trimmed and lighted lamps, ready for carriage service. They made a bright show, and their light and the warmth accounted for the popularity of the room, 
as borne witness to by many impressions of velveteen trousers on the form by the fire, and many rounded smears and smudges of stooping velveteen shoulders on the adjacent wall. Various untidy shelves accommodated a quantity of lamps and oil-cans, and also a fragrant collection of what looked like the pocket-handkerchiefs of the whole lamp family. As Barbox Brothers, so to call the traveller on the warranty of his luggage, took his seat upon the form, and warmed his now ungloved hands at the fire, he glanced aside at a little deal desk, much blotched with ink, which his elbow touched. Upon it were some scraps of coarse paper, and a superannuated steel pen, in very reduced and gritty circumstances. From glancing at the scraps of paper, he turned involuntarily to his host, and said, with some roughness, "'Why, you're never a poet, man.' Lamps had certainly not the conventional appearance of one, as he stood, modestly rubbing his squat nose with a handkerchief so exceedingly oily, that he might have been in the act of mistaking himself for one of his charges. He was a spare man of about the Barbox brothers' time of life, with his features whimsically drawn upward as if they were attracted by the roots of his hair. He had a particularly shining transparent complexion, probably occasioned by constant oleaginous application, and his attractive hair, being cut short and being grizzled and standing straight up on end, as if it and its turn were attracted by some invisible magnet above it, the top of his head was not very unlike a lamp-wick. But, but to be sure, it's no business of mine. That was an impertinent observation on my part. Be what you like. Some people, sir, remarked Lamps, in a tone of apology, are sometimes what they don't like. Nobody knows that better than I do, sighed the other. I have been what I don't like all my life. When I first took, sir, resumed Lamps, Two composing little comic songs, like? Barbox Brothers eyed him with great disfavour. To composing little comic songs, like, and what was more hard to sing in them afterwards, said Lamps. It went against the grain at the time, it did indeed. Something that was not all oil here shining in Lamps' eye. Barbox Brothers withdrew his own, a little disconcerted, and looked at the fire, and put a foot on the top bar. "'Why do you do it, then?' he asked, after a short pause, abruptly enough, but in a softer tone. "'If you didn't want to do it, why did you do it? Where did you sing them? Public house?' To which Mr. Lamps returned the curious reply, "'Bedside.' At this moment, while the traveller looked at him for elucidation, Mugby Junction started suddenly, trembled violently, and opened its gas eyes. "'She's got up,' Lamps announced, excited. "'What lays in her power is sometimes more and sometimes less, but is laid in her power to get up to-night, by George.' The legend, Barbox Brothers, in large white letters on two black surfaces, was very soon afterwards trundling on a truck through a silent street, and when the owner of the legend had shivered on the pavement half an hour, what time the porter's knocks at the inn door knocked up the whole town first and the inn last, he groped his way into the close air of a shut-up house, and so groped between the sheets of a shut-up bed that seemed to have been expressly refrigerated for him when last made. Part Two You remember me, young Jackson? 
"'What do I remember, if not you? "'You are my first remembrance. "'It was you who told me that was my name. "'It was you who told me that, on every twentieth of December, "'my life had a penitential anniversary in it called a birthday. "'I suppose the last communication was truer than the first. "'What am I like, young Jackson?' "'You are like a blight all through the year to me. "'You hard-lined, thin-lipped, repressive, changeless woman with a wax mask on. "'You are like the devil to me, most of all when you teach me religious things, "'for you make me abhor them.' "'You remember me, Mr. Young Jackson?' "'In another voice from another quarter?' "'Most gratefully, sir.' You were the ray of hope and prospering ambition in my life. When I attended your course, I believed that I should come to be a great healer, and I felt almost happy, even though I was still the one boarder in the house with that horrible mask, and ate and drank in silence and constraint with the mask before me every day, as I had done every, every, every day, to my school-time and from my earliest recollection. "'What am I like, Mr. Young Jackson?' "'You are like a superior being to me. "'You are like nature beginning to reveal herself to me. "'I hear you again as one of the hushed crowd of young men "'kindling under the power of your presence and knowledge, "'and you bring into my eyes the only exultant tears "'that have ever stood in them.' "'You remember me, Mr. Young Jackson?' "'In a grating voice from a quite another quarter. "'Too well. "'You made your ghostly appearance in my life one day "'and announced that its course was to be suddenly and wholly changed. "'You showed me which was my wearisome seat in the galley of Barbox Brothers. "'When they were, if they ever were, is unknown to me.' There was nothing of them but the name when I bent to the oar. You told me what I was to do and what to be paid. You told me afterwards, at intervals of years, when I was to sign for the firm, when I became a partner, when I became the firm, I know no more of it or of myself. What am I like, Mr. Young Jackson? You are like my father, I sometimes think. You are hard enough and cold enough so as to have brought up an unacknowledged son. I see your scanty figure, your close brown suit, and your tight brown wig. But you, too, wear a wax mask to your death. You never by a chance remove it. It never by a chance falls off. And I know no more of you. Throughout this dialogue the traveller spoke to himself at his window in the morning, as he had spoken to himself at the junction overnight, and as he had then looked in the darkness, a man who had turned grey too soon, like a neglected fire, so he now looked in the sunlight, an ashier grey, like a fire which the brightness of the sun put out. The firm of Barbox Brothers had been some offshoot or irregular branch of the public notary and bill-broking tree, it had gained for itself a griping reputation before the days of young Jackson, and the reputation had stuck to it and to him. As he had imperceptibly come into possession of the dim den in the corner of a court off Lombard Street, on whose grimy windows the inscription, 
Barbox Brothers had for many long years daily interposed itself between him and the sky, so he had insensibly found himself a personage held in chronic distrust, whom it was essential to screw tight to every transaction in which he engaged, whose word was never to be taken without his attested bond, whom all dealers with openly set up guards and wards against. This character had come down upon him through no act of his own. It was as if the original Barbox had stretched himself down upon the office floor, and had thither caused to be conveyed young Jackson in his sleep, and had there effected a metempsychosis and exchange of persons with him. The discovery, aided in its turn by the deceit of the only woman he had ever loved, and the deceit of the only friend he had ever made, who eloped from him to be married together, the discovery so followed up completed what his earliest rearing had begun. He shrank abashed within the form of Barbox, and lifted up his head and heart no more. But he did at last effect one great release in his condition. He broke the oar he had plied so long, and he scuttled and sank the galley. He prevented the gradual retirement of an old conventional business from him, by taking the initiative and retiring from it. With enough to live on, though after all with not too much, he obliterated the firm of Barbox Brothers from the pages of the post-office directory and the face of the earth, leaving nothing of it but its name on two portmanteaus. "'For one must have some name in going about for people to pick up,' he explained to Mugby High Street through the inn window. "'And that name at least was real once, whereas young Jackson—' not to mention its being a sadly satirical misnomer for old Jackson. He took up his hat and walked out, just in time to see, passing along on the opposite side of the way, a velveteen man carrying his day's dinner in a small bundle that might have been larger without suspicion of gluttony, and pelting away towards the junction at a great pace. "'There's lamps,' said Barbox's brother. "'And by the by—' Ridiculous, surely, that a man so serious, so self-contained, and not yet three days emancipated from a routine of drudgery, should stand rubbing his chin in the street in a brown study about comic songs. "'Bedside?' said Barbox Brothers, testily. "'Sings them at the bedside? Why at the bedside, unless he goes to bed drunk?' "'Does, I shouldn't wonder. But it's no business of mine.' Let me see. Mugby Junction. Mugby Junction. Where shall I go next? As it came into my head last night, when I woke from an uneasy sleep in the carriage and found myself here, I can go anywhere from here. Where shall I go? I'll go and look at the junction by daylight. There's no hurry, and I may like the look of one line better than another. But there were so many lines— Gazing down upon them from a bridge at the junction, it was as if the concentrating companies formed a great industrial exhibition of the works of extraordinary ground-spiders that spun iron. And then so many of the lines went such wonderful ways, so crossing and curving amongst one another, that the eye lost them. And then some of them appeared to start with the fixed intention of going five hundred miles— and all of a sudden gave it up at an insignificant barrier, or turned off into a workshop. 
and then others, like intoxicated men, went a little way very straight, and surprisingly slewed round and came back again, and then others were so chock-full of trucks of coal, others were so blocked with trucks of casks, others were so gorged with trucks of ballast, others were so set apart for wheeled objects, like immense iron cotton reels, while others were so bright and clear, and others were so delivered over to rust and ashes and idle wheelbarrows out of work, with their legs in the air, looking much like their masters on strike, that there was no beginning, middle, or end to the bewilderment. Barbox Brothers stood puzzled on the bridge, passing his right hand across the lines on his forehead, which multiplied while he looked down, as if the railway lines were getting themselves photographed onto that sensitive plate. Then was heard a distant ringing of bells and blowing of whistles. Then puppet-looking heads of men popped out of boxes in perspective, and popped in again. Then prodigious wooden razors set up on end began shaving the atmosphere. Then several locomotive engines in several directions began to scream and be agitated. Then along one avenue a train came in. Then along another two trains appeared that didn't come in but stopped without. Then bits of trains broke off. Then a struggling horse became involved with them. Then the locomotive shared the bits of trains and ran away with the whole. I have not made my next move much clearer by this. No hurry. No need to make up my mind to-day or to-morrow, nor yet the day after. I'll take a walk. It fell out somehow, perhaps he meant it should, that the walk tended to the platform at which he had alighted and to Lamps's room. But Lamps was not in his room. A pair of velveteen shoulders were adapting themselves to one of the impressions on the wall by Lamps's fireplace, but otherwise the room was void. In passing back to get out of the station again, he learnt the cause of this vacancy by catching sight of lamps on the opposite side of railway, skipping along the top of a train from carriage to carriage, and catching lighted namesakes thrown up to him by a coadjutor. Mm, he is busy. He has not much time for composing or singing comic songs this morning, I take it. The direction he pursued now was into the country, keeping very near to the side of one great line of railway, and with an easy view of others. "'I have half a mind,' he said, glancing round, "'to settle the question from this point by saying, "'I'll take this set of rails, or that, or t'other, and stick with it. "'They separate themselves from the confusion out here, and go their ways.' Ascending a gentle hill of some extent, he came to a few cottages. There, looking about him as a very reserved man might, who had never looked about him in his life before, he saw some six or eight young children come merrily trooping and hooping from one of the cottages and disperse, but not until they had all turned at the little garden gate and kissed their hands to a face at the upper window, a low window enough, although the upper, for the cottage had but a story of one room above the ground. Now, that the children should do this was nothing, but that they should do this to a face lying on the sill of the open window turned towards them in a horizontal position, and apparently only a face, was something noticeable. He looked up at the window again. 
could only see a very fragile, though a very bright face, lying on one cheek on the window-sill, the delicate smiling face of a girl or woman, framed in long bright brown hair, round which was tied a light blue band or fillet, passing under the chin. He walked on, turned back, passed the window again, shyly glanced up again. No change. He struck off by a winding branch road at the top of the hill, which he must otherwise have descended, kept the cottages in view, worked his way round at a distance so as to come out once more into the main road and be obliged to pass the cottages again. The face still lay on the window-sill, but not so much inclined towards him. And now there were a pair of delicate hands, too. They had the action of performing on some musical instrument, and yet it produced no sound that reached his ears. "'Mugby Junction must be the maddest place in England,' said Barbox Brothers, pursuing his way down the hill. "'The first thing I find here is a railway porter who composes comic songs to sing at his bedside. The second thing I find here is a face and a pair of hands playing a musical instrument that don't play.' The day was a fine bright day in the early beginning of November. The air was clear and inspiriting and the landscape was rich in beautiful colours. The prevailing colours in the court off Lombard Street, London City, had been few and sombre. Sometimes, when the weather elsewhere was very bright indeed, the dwellers in those tents enjoyed a pepper-and-salt coloured day or two, but their atmosphere's usual wear was slate or snuff colour. He relished his walk so well that he repeated it next day. He was a little earlier at the cottage than on the day before, and he could hear the children upstairs singing to a regular measure, and clapping out the time with their hands. "'Still, there is no sound of any musical instrument,' he said, listening at the corner, "'and yet I saw the performing hands again as I came by. What are the children singing? Why, good Lord, they can never be singing the multiplication table.' They were, though and with infinite enjoyment. The mysterious face had a voice attached to it, which occasionally led or set the children right. Its musical cheerfulness was delightful. The measure at length stopped, and was succeeded by a murmuring of young voices, and then by a short song which he made out to be about the current month of the year, and about what work it yielded to the labourers in the fields and farmyards. Then there was a stir of little feet, and the children came trooping and hooping out as on the previous day. And again, as on the previous day, they all turned at the garden gate and kissed their hands, evidently to the face on the window-sill, though Barbox Brothers, from his retired post of disadvantage at the corner, could not see it. But as the children dispersed, he cut off one small straggler, a brown-faced boy with flaxen hair, and said to him, "'Come here, little one. Tell me, whose house is that?' The child, with one swarthy arm held up across his eyes, half in shyness and half ready for defence, said from behind the inside of his elbow, "'Phoebes!' "'And who?' said Barbox Brothers, quite as much embarrassed by his part in the dialogue as the child could possibly be by his. "'Is Phoebe?' To which the child made answer, "'Why, Phoebe, of course!' 
The small but sharp observer had eyed his questioner closely, and had taken his moral measure. He lowered his guard, and rather assumed a tone with him, as having discovered him to be an unaccustomed person in the art of polite conversation. "'Phoebe!' said the child. "'Can't possibly be anybody else but Phoebe, can she?' "'No, I suppose not.' "'Well,' returned the child, "'then why did you ask me?' Deeming it prudent to shift his ground, Barbox Brothers took up a new position. "'What do you do there, up in that room where the open window is? What do you do there?' "'Cool,' said the child. "'Eh?' "'Cool,' the child repeated in a louder voice, lengthening out the word with a fixed look and with great emphasis, as much as to say— "'What's the use of your having grown up "'if you're such a donkey as not to understand me?' "'Ah, school, school,' said Barbox Brothers. "'Yes, yes, yes. "'And Phoebe teaches you.' "'The child nodded. "'Good boy.' "'Found it out, have you?' said the child. "'Yes, I have found it out. "'What would you do with tuppence if I gave it to you?' "'Pend it!' The knock-down promptitude of this reply, leaving him not a leg to stand upon, Barbox Brothers produced the tuppence with great lameness, and withdrew in a state of humiliation. But seeing the face on the window-sill as he passed the cottage, he acknowledged its presence there with a gesture, which was not a nod, not a bow, not a removal of his hat from his head, but was a diffident compromise between, or struggle with all three. The eyes in the face seemed amused, or cheered, or both— and the lips modestly said, "'Good day to you, sir.' "'I find I must stick for a time to Mugby Junction,' said Barbox Brothers, with much gravity, after once more stopping on his return road to look up at the lines, where they went their several ways so quietly. "'I can't make up my mind yet which iron road to take. In fact, I must get a little accustomed to the junction before I can decide.' So he announced at the inn that he was going to stay on for the present, and improved his acquaintance with the junction that night, and again the next morning, and again next night and next morning, going down to the station, mingling with the people there, looking about him down all the avenues of railway, and beginning to take an interest in the incomings and outgoings of the train. At first he often put his head into Lamps's little room, but he never found Lamps there. A pair or two of velveteen shoulders he usually found there, stooping over the fire, sometimes in connection with a clasp-knife and a piece of bread and meat. But the answer to his inquiry, "'Where's Lamps?' was either that he was t'other side of the line, or that it was his off-time, or, in the latter case, his own personal introduction to another Lamps, who was not his Lamps.' However, he was not so desperately set upon seeing Lamps now, but he bore the disappointment. Nor did he wholly devote himself to his severe application to the study of Mugby Junction as to neglect exercise. On the contrary, he took a walk every day, and always the same walk. But the weather turned cold and wet again, and the window was never open. Part 3 at length, after a lapse of some days, there came another streak of fine, bright, hardy autumn weather. It was a Saturday. The window was open, and the children were gone. Not surprising this, for he had patiently watched and waited at the corner until they were gone. "'A good day,' he said to the face, 
absolutely getting his hat clear off his head this time. "'Good day to you, sir.' "'I'm glad you have a fine sky again to look at.' "'Thank you, sir. It is kind of you.' "'You are an invalid, I fear.' "'No, sir. I have very good health.' "'But are you not always lying down?' "'Oh, yes. I am always lying down because I cannot sit up. But I am not an invalid.' The laughing eyes seemed highly to enjoy his great mistake. "'Would you mind taking the trouble to come in, sir? There is a beautiful view from this window, and you would see that I am not at all ill, being so good as to care.' It was said to help him, as he stood irresolute, but evidently desiring to enter, with his diffident hand, on the latch of the garden gate. It did help him, and he went in. The room upstairs was a very clean, white room with a low roof. Its only inmate lay on a couch that brought her face on a level with the window. The couch was white, too, and her simple dress or wrapper being light blue, like the band around her hair, she had an ethereal look and a fanciful appearance of lying among clouds. He felt that she instinctively perceived him to be by habit a downcast, taciturn man, it was another help to him to have established that understanding so easily, and got it over. There was an awkward constraint upon him, nevertheless, as he touched her hand and took a chair at the side of her couch. "'I see now,' he began, not at all fluently, "'how you occupy your hands. Only seeing you from the path outside, I thought you were playing upon something.' She was engaged in very nimbly and dexterously making lace. A lace-pillow lay upon her breast, and the quick movements and changes of her hands upon it, as she worked, had given them the action he had misinterpreted. "'That is curious,' she answered with a bright smile, "'for I often fancy myself that I play tunes when I am at work.' "'Have you any musical knowledge?' She shook her head. "'I think I could pick out tunes if I had any instrument which could be made as handy to me as my lace-pillow.' "'but I dare say I deceive myself. "'At all events, I shall never know.' "'You have a musical voice. "'Excuse me, I have heard you sing.' "'With the children,' she answered, slightly colouring. "'Oh, yes, I sing with the dear children, "'if it can be called singing.' Barbox Brothers glanced at the two small forms in the room "'and hazarded the speculation that she was fond of children "'and that she was learned in new systems of teaching them.' "'Very fond of them,' she said, shaking her head again. "'But I know nothing of teaching, beyond the interest I have in it, "'and the pleasure it gives me when they learn. "'Perhaps your overhearing my little scholars sing some of their lessons "'has led you so far astray as to think me a grand teacher. <laughs> "'Ah, I thought so. "'No, I have only read and been told about that system. "'It seemed so pretty and pleasant, and to treat them so, like the merry robins they are, "'that I took up with it in my little way.' "'You don't need to be told what a very little way mine is, sir,' she added, with a glance at the small forms and around the room. All this time her hands were busy at her lace-pillow, and they still continued so, and as if there was a kind of substitute for conversation in the click and play of its pegs. Barbox Brothers took the opportunity of observing her. He guessed her to be thirty. The charm of her transparent face and large brown eyes— was not that they were passively resigned, but that they were actively and thoroughly cheerful. 
Even her busy hands, which of their own thinness alone might have besought compassion, plied their task with a gay courage that made mere compassion an unjustifiable assumption of superiority and an impertinence. He saw her eyes in the act of rising towards his, and he directed his towards the prospect, saying, "'Beautiful indeed!' "'Most beautiful, sir. I have sometimes had a fancy that I would like to sit up, for once, only to try how it looks to an erect head. But what a foolish fancy that would be to encourage! It cannot look more lovely to any one than it does to me.' Her eyes were turned to it as she spoke with most delighted admiration and enjoyment. There was not a trace in it of any sense of deprivation. And those threads of railways, with their puffs of smoke and steam-changing places so fast, make it lively for me, she went on. I think of the number of people who can go where they wish, on their business or their pleasure. I remember that the puffs make signs to me that they are actually going while I look and that enlivens the prospect with abundance of company, if I want company. There is the great junction, too. I don't see it under the foot of the hill, but I can very often hear it, and I always know it is there. It seems to join me in a way to I don't know how many places and things that I shall never see. With an abashed kind of idea that it might already have joined himself to something he had never seen, he said constrainedly, "'Just so.' "'And so you see, sir,' pursued Phoebe, "'I'm not the invalid you thought me, and I'm very well off indeed.' "'You have a happy disposition,' said Barbox Brothers, perhaps with a slight excusatory touch for his own disposition. "'Ah, but you should know my father,' she replied. "'His is the happy disposition. Don't mind, sir.' for his reserve took the alarm at a step upon the stairs, and he distrusted that he would be set down for a troublesome intruder. This is my father coming. The door opened, and the father paused there. "'Why, Lamps!' exclaimed Barbox Brothers, starting from his chair. "'How do you do, Lamps?' To which, Lamps responded, oh, "'The gentleman from nowhere. How do you do, sir?' and they shook hands, to the greatest admiration and surprise of Lamps's daughter. "'I have looked you up half a dozen times since that night,' said Barbox Brothers, "'but I have never found you.' "'So I've heard on, sir, so I've heard on,' returned Lamps. "'It's your being noticed so often down at the junction, without taking any train that has begun to get you the name amongst us of the gentleman for nowhere.' "'No offence in my having called you by it when I took by surprise, I hope, sir. "'None at all. It's as good a name for me as any other you could call me by. "'But may I ask you a question in the corner here?' Lamp suffered himself to be led aside from his daughter's couch by one of the buttons of his velveteen jacket. "'Is this the bedside where you sing your songs?' Lamps nodded. The gentleman for nowhere clapped him on the shoulder, and they faced about again. "'Upon my word, my dear,' said Lamps then to his daughter, looking from her to her visitors, "'it is such an amaze to me to find you are acquainted with this gentleman that I must, if this gentleman excuse me, take a rounder. 
Mr. Lamps demonstrated in action what this meant by pulling out his oily handkerchief rolled up in the form of a ball, and giving himself an elaborate smear from behind the right ear, up the cheek, across the forehead, and down the other cheek to behind his left ear. After this operation he shone exceedingly. "'Tis according to my custom when particular warmed up by any agitation, sir,' he offered by way of apology. "'And really, I'm thrown into that state of amaze by finding you acquainted with Phoebe "'that I that I think I will, if you'll excuse me, take another rounder.' "'Which he did, seemingly to be greatly restored by it. "'They were now both standing by the side of her couch, "'and she was working at her lace pillow. "'Your daughter tells me,' said Barbox Brothers, "'still in a half-reluctant, shamefaced way, "'that she never sits up.' "'No, sir, nor ever has done. "'See her mother, who died when she was a year and two months old, "'was subject to very bad fits. "'And as she had never mentioned to me that she was subject to fits, "'they couldn't be guarded against. "'Consequently, she dropped the baby when took, and this happened.' "'It was very wrong of her,' said Barbox Brothers, with a knitted brow, "'to marry you, making a secret of her infirmity.' "'Well, sir,' pleaded Lamp, in behalf of the long-deceased, "'you see, Phoebe and me, we've talked that over, too. "'And, Lord, bless us such a number on us as our infirmities, "'what we fits and what we misfits, one sort or another, "'that if we confessed to them all before we got married, "'most of us might never get married.' "'Might not that be for the better?' "'Not in this case, sir,' said Phoebe, giving her hand to her father. "'No, not in this case, sir,' said her father, patting it between his own. "'You correct me,' returned Barbox Brothers, with a blush, "'and I must look so like a brute that at all events it would be superfluous in me to confess to that infirmity. "'I wish you would tell me a little more about yourselves. "'I hardly know how to ask it of you, for I am conscious that I have a bad, stiff manner, "'a dull, discouraging way with me, but I wish you would.' "'With all our hearts, sir,' returned Lamps gaily for both. "'And first of all, that you may know my name, say, interposed the visitor with a slight flush, "'what signifies your name? "'Lamps is good enough for me. "'I like it. "'It's bright and expressive. "'What do I want more?' "'Why, to be sure, sir,' returned Lamps, "'I have in general no other name down at the junction, "'but I thought, on account of your being here as a first-class single, "'in a private character, as you might.' "'The visitor waved the thought away with his hand, "'and Lamps acknowledged the mark of confidence by taking another rounder. "'You're hard-worked, I take it for granted,' said Barbox Brothers, "'when the subject of the rounder came out of it much dirtier than he went into it. "'Lamps was beginning, "'Oh, not particularly so.' when his daughter took him up. "'Oh, yes, sir, he's very hard-worked. Fourteen, fifteen, eighteen hours a day, sometimes twenty-four hours at a time.' "'And you?' said Barbox Brothers. "'What with your school, Phoebe, and what with your lace-making?' "'But my school is a pleasure to me,' she interrupted, opening her brown eyes wider, as if surprised to find him so obtuse. "'I began it when I was but a child, because it brought me and other children into company. "'Don't you see? That was not work. "'I carry it on still, because it keeps children about me. "'That is not work. I do it as love, not as work. "'Then my lace pillow. 
Her busy hands had stopped, as if her argument required all her cheerful earnestness, but now went on again at the name. "'It goes with my thoughts when I think, and it goes with my tunes when I hum away, and that's not work. Why, you yourself thought it was music, you know, sir, and so it is to me.' "'Everything is,' cried Lamps radiantly. "'Everything is music to her, sir.' "'My father is at any rate,' said Phoebe, exultingly pointing her thin forefinger at him. "'There is more music in my father than there is in a brass band.' "'I say, my dear, it's very filly-lily done, you know, but you are flattering your father,' he protested, sparkling. "'No, I'm not, sir, I assure you. No, I'm not. If you could hear my father sing, you would know I'm not. But you never will hear him sing, cause he never sings to any one but me. However tired he is, he always sings to me when he comes home. When I lay here long ago, quite a poor little broken doll, he used to sing to me.' More than that, he used to make songs, bringing in whatever little jokes we had between us. More than that, he often does so to this day. Oh, I'll tell of you, father, as the gentleman has asked about you. He is a poet, sir. Oh, you shouldn't wish the gentleman, my dear, observed Lamps, for the moment, turning grave, to carry away that opinion of your father, because it might look as if I was given to asking the stars in a melancholy manner what he was up to. "'Wish I wouldn't at once waste the time and take the liberty, my dear.' "'My father,' resumed Phoebe, amending her text, "'is always on the bright side and the good side. "'You told me now I had a happy disposition. "'How can I help it?' <laughs> "'Well, but my dear,' returned Lamps, argumentatively, "'how can I help it? "'Put it to yourself, sir. Look at her. "'Always as you see her now, always working.' "'And after all, sir, for a very few shillings a week, "'always contented, always lively, "'always interested in others of all sorts. "'I said this moment she was always as you see her now. "'So she is, with a difference that comes to much the same. "'But when it's my Sunday off and the morning bells are done ringing, "'I hear the prayers and thanks read in the touchingest way. "'I have the hymns sung to me.' "'So soft, sir, that you couldn't hear them out of this room. "'In notes that seem to me I'm sure to come from heaven and go back to it.' "'It might have been merely through the association of these words "'with their sacredly quiet time, "'or it might have been through the larger association of the words "'with the Redeemer's presence beside the bedridden. "'But here her dexterous fingers came to a stop on the lace-pillow "'and clasped themselves round his neck as he bent down.' There was a great natural sensibility in both father and daughter. The visitor could easily see, but each made it, for the other's sake, retiring, not demonstrative, and perfect cheerfulness, intuitive or acquired, was either the first or second nature of both. In a very few moments Lamps was taking another rounder with his comical features beaming, while Phoebe's laughing eyes, just a glistening speck or so upon their lashes, were again directed by turns to him and to her work and to Barbox Brothers. "'When my father, sir,' she said brightly, "'tells you about my being interested in other people, "'even though they know nothing about me, "'which, by the by, I told you myself, "'you ought to know how that comes about. "'That's my father's doing.' "'No, it isn't,' he protested. "'Don't you believe him, sir? Yes, it is. "'He tells me of everything he sees down at his work. 
"'You'd be surprised what a quantity he gets together for me every day. "'He looks into the carriages and tells me how the ladies are dressed, "'so that I know all the fashions. "'He looks into the carriages and tells me what pairs of lovers he sees, "'and what new-married couples on their wedding trip, "'so that I know all about that. "'He collects chance newspapers and books, so that I have plenty to read.' "'He tells me about the sick people who are travelling to try to get better, "'so that I know all about them. "'In short, as I began by saying, "'he tells me everything he sees and makes out down at his work, "'and you can't think what a quantity he does see and make out.' "'As to collecting newspapers and books, my dear,' said Lamps, "'it's clear I can have no merit in that, because they are not my perquisites. "'Caesar is this way. "'A guard, he'll say to me,' "'Hullo, here you are, Lamps. I've saved this paper for your daughter. How's she getting on?' "'A head porter, he'll say to me. "'Yer, catch old Lamps. Here's a couple of wallums for your daughter. Is she pretty much where she were?' "'And that's what makes it double welcome, you see. If she had a thousand pound in a box, they wouldn't trouble themselves about her. But being what she is, if that is, you understand, not having a thousand pound in a box, they take thought for her.' "'And as concerning the young pairs, married and unmarried, "'it's only natural I should bring home what little I can about them, "'seeing as there's not a couple of either sort in the neighbourhood "'that don't come of their own accord to confide in Phoebe.' "'She raised her eyes triumphantly to Barbox Brothers, as she said, "'Indeed, sir, that's true. "'If I could have got up and gone to church, "'I don't know how often I should have been the bridesmaid.' "'But if I could have done that, some girls in love might have been jealous of me. "'And as it is, no girl is jealous of me. "'And my pillow would not have been half so ready to put the piece of cake under, as I always find it.' "'She added, turning her face on it with a light sigh and a smile at her father. "'The arrival of a little girl, the biggest of the scholars, "'now led to an understanding on the part of Barbox Brothers "'that she was the domestic of the cottage.' and had come to take active measures in it, attended by a pail that might have extinguished her, and a broom three times her height. He therefore rose to take his leave, and took it, saying that, if Phoebe had no objection, he would come again. He had muttered that he would come again in the course of his walks. The course of his walks must have been highly favourable to his return, for he returned after an interval of a single day. "'You thought you would never see me any more, I suppose,' he said to Phoebe, as he touched her hand and sat down by her couch. "'Why should I think so?' was her surprised rejoinder. "'I took it for granted you would mistrust me.' "'For granted, sir? Have you been much mistrusted?' "'I think I'm justified in answering yes. But I may have mistrusted, too, on my part.' "'No matter just now. We were speaking of the junction last time.' "'I have passed hours there since the day before yesterday.' "'Are you now the gentleman for somewhere?' she asked, with a smile. "'Certainly for somewhere, but I don't know yet where. "'You would never guess what I am travelling from. "'Shall I tell you? "'I am travelling from my birthday.' "'Her hand stopped in her work, and she looked at him with incredulous astonishment. "'Yes,' said Barbox Brothers, not quite easy in his chair. "'from my birthday. "'I am to myself an unintelligible book, "'with the earlier chapters all torn out and thrown away. "'My childhood had no grace of childhood, "'my youth had no charm of youth, 
and what can be expected from such a lost beginning. His eyes, meeting hers as they were addressed intently to him, something seemed to stir within his breast, whispering, Was this bed a place for the graces of childhood and the charms of youth to take too kindly? Oh, shame, shame! It is a disease with me, said Barbox Brothers, checking himself, and making as though he had a difficulty in swallowing something. Uh, to go wrong about that, I, I don't know how I came to speak of that. I hope it's because of an old misplaced confidence in one of your sex involving an old bitter treachery. I don't know. I'm all wrong together. Her hands quietly and slowly resumed their work. Glancing at her, he saw that her eyes were thoughtfully following them. "'I'm travelling from my birthday,' he resumed, "'because it has always been a dreary day to me. "'My first free birthday coming round some five or six weeks hence, "'I am travelling to put its predecessors far behind me, "'and to try and crush the day, "'or at all events put it out of my sight "'by heaping new objects on it.' "'And he paused. "'She looked at him, but only to shake her head "'as being quite at a loss.' Now, this is unintelligible to your happy disposition,' he pursued, abiding by his former phrase, as if there were some lingering virtue of self-defence in it. "'I knew it would be, and I'm glad it is. However, on this travel of mine, in which I mean to pass the rest of my days, having abandoned all thought of a fixed home, I stopped, as you heard from your father at the junction here.' The extent of its ramifications quite confused me as to whither I should go from here. I have not yet settled, being still perplexed among so many roads. What do you think I mean to do? How many of the branching roads can you see from your window? Looking out, full of interest, she answered, Seven. Seven, said Barbox Brothers, watching her with a grave smile. "'Well, I propose to myself at once to reduce the gross number to those very seven, "'and gradually to find them down to one, the most promising for me, and to take that.' "'But how will you know, sir, which is the most promising?' she asked, "'with her brightened eyes roving over the view. "'Ah!' said Barbox Brothers, with another grave smile, "'and considerably improving in his ease of speech. "'To be sure, in this way.' "'Where your father can pick up so much every day for a good purpose, "'I may once and again pick up a little for an indifferent purpose. "'The gentleman for nowhere must become still better known at the junction. "'He shall continue to explore it "'until he attaches something that he has seen, heard, or found out "'at the head of each of the seven roads to the road itself. "'And so his choice of a road shall be determined by his choice among his discoveries.' Her hands still busy, she again glanced at the prospect, as if it comprehended something that had not been in it before, and laughed as if it yielded her new pleasure. "'But I must not forget,' said Barbox Brothers, having got so far to ask a favour. "'I want your help in this expedient of mine. I want to bring you what I could pick up at the heads of the seven roads that you lie here looking out at, and to compare notes with you about it. May I?' "'They say two heads are better than one. "'I should say myself that probably depends upon the heads concerned. "'But I'm quite sure, though, though we are so newly acquainted, "'that your head and your father's have found out better things, Phoebe, "'than ever mine of itself discovered.' 
she gave him her sympathetic right hand in perfect rapture with his proposal and eagerly and gratefully thanked him that's well said barbox brothers again i must not forget having got so far to ask a favour will you shut your eyes laughing playfully at the strange nature of the request she did so keep them shut said barbox brothers going softly to the door and coming back you are on your honour mind not to open your eyes until i tell you that you may yes on my honour good may i take your lace pillow from you for a moment still laughing and wondering she removed her hands from it and he put it aside tell me did you see the puffs of smoke and steam made by the morning fast train yesterday on road number seven from here behind the elm trees and the spire that's the road said barbox brothers directing his eyes towards it yes i watched them melt away anything unusual in what they expressed no she answered merrily not complimentary to me for i was in that train i went don't open your eyes to fetch you this from the great ingenious town it's not half so large as your lace pillow and lies easily and lightly in its place these little keys are like the keys of a miniature piano and you supply the air required with your left hand may you pick out delightful music from it my dear for the present you can open your eyes now good-bye in his embarrassed way he closed the door upon himself and only saw in doing so that she ecstatically took the present to her bosom and caressed it the glimpse gladdened his heart and yet saddened it for so might she if her youth had flourished in its natural course have taken to her breast that day the slumbering music of her own child's voice end of barbox brothers barbox brothers and company this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for further information or to find out how you can volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by andy minter charles dickens two hundredth anniversary collection volume one barbox brothers and company by charles dickens with good will and earnest purpose the gentleman for nowhere began on the very next day his researches at the heads of the seven roads the results of his researches as he and phoebe afterwards set them down in fair writing hold their due places in this voracious chronicle but they occupied a much longer time in the getting together than they ever will in the perusal and this is probably the case with most reading matter except when it is of that highly beneficial kind for posterity which is thrown off in a few moments of leisure by the superior poetic geniuses who scorned to take prose pains it must be admitted however that barbox by no means hurried himself his heart being in his work of good nature he revelled in it there was the joy too it was a true joy to him of sometimes sitting by listening to phoebe as she picked out more and more discourse from her musical instrument 
and as her natural taste and ear refined daily upon her first discoveries. Besides being a pleasure, this was an occupation, and in the course of weeks it consumed hours. It resulted that his dreaded birthday was close upon him before he had troubled himself any more about it. The matter was made more pressing by the unforeseen circumstance that the councils held, at which Mr. Lamps, beaming most brilliantly on a few rare occasions, assisted, respecting the road to be selected, were, after all, in no wise assisted by his investigations. For he had connected this interest with this road, or that interest with the other, but could deduce no reason from it for giving any road the preference. Consequently, when the last council was holden, that part of the business stood, in the end, exactly where it had stood in the beginning. "'But, sir,' remarked Phoebe, "'we have only six roads after all. Is the seventh road dumb?' "'The seventh road? Ah,' said Barbox Brothers, rubbing his chin, "'that is the road I took, you know, when I went to get your little present. That is its story, Phoebe.' "'Would you mind taking that road again, sir?' she asked, with hesitation. "'Not in the least. It is a great high road, after all.' "'I should like you to take it,' returned Phoebe, with a persuasive smile, "'for the love of that little present, which must ever be so dear to me. "'I should like you to take it, because that road can never be again like any other road to me. "'I should like you to take it, in remembrance of your having done me so much good.' or your having made me so much happier. If you leave me by the road you travelled when you went to do me this great kindness, sounding a faint chord as she spoke, I shall feel, lying here watching my window, as if it must conduct you to a prosperous end, and bring you back some day. It shall be done, my dear, it shall be done. So at last the gentleman for nowhere took a ticket for somewhere, and his destination was the great ingenious town. He had loitered so long about the junction that it was the 18th of December when he left it. Hmm, high time, he reflected, as he seated himself in the train, that I started in earnest. Only one clear day remains between me and the day I'm running away from. I'll push onward for the hill country tomorrow. I'll go to Wales." It was with some pains that he placed before himself the undeniable advantages to be gained in the way of novel occupation for his senses from misty mountains, swollen streams, rain, cold, a wild seashore, and rugged roads, and yet he scarcely made them out as distinctly as he could have wished. Whether the poor girl, in spite of her new resource, her music, would have any feeling of loneliness upon her now, just at first, that she had not had before— whether she saw those very puffs of steam and smoke that he saw as he sat in the train thinking of her, whether her face would have any pensive shadow on it as they died out of the distant view from her window, whether, in telling him he had done her so much good, she had not unconsciously corrected his old moony bemoaning of his station in life by setting him thinking that a man might be a great healer, if he would, and yet not be a great doctor. These and other similar meditations got between him and his Welsh picture. There was within him, too, that dull sense of vacuity which follows separation from an object of interest, and cessation of a pleasant pursuit, and this sense being quite new to him made him restless. Further, 
in losing Mugby Junction he had found himself again, and he was not the more enamoured of himself for having lately passed his time in better company. But surely here, not far ahead, must be the great ingenious town. This crashing and clashing that the train was undergoing, and this coupling on to it of a multitude of new echoes, could mean nothing less than approach to the great station. It did mean nothing less. After some stormy flashes of town lightning in the way of swift revelations of red-brick blocks of houses, high red chimney-shafts, vistas of red-brick railway arches, tongues of fire, blocks of smoke, valleys of canal, and hills of coal, there came the thundering in at the journey's end. Having seen his portmanteaus safely housed in the hotel he chose, and having appointed his dinner hour, Barbox Brothers went out for a walk in the busy streets. And now it began to be suspected by him that Mugby Junction was a junction of many branches, invisible as well as visible, and had joined him to an endless number of byways. For whereas he would but a little while ago have walked these streets blindly brooding, he now had eyes and thoughts for a new external world. How the many toiling people lived and loved and died, how wonderful it was to consider the various trainings of eye and hand, the nice distinctions of sight and touch, that separated them into classes of workers, and even into classes of workers at subdivisions of one complete whole, which combined their many intelligences and forces. Though of itself but some cheap object of use or ornament in common life, how good it was to know that such assembling in a multitude on their part, and such contribution of their several dexterities towards a civilising end, did not deteriorate them, as it was the fashion of the supercilious mayflies of humanity to pretend, but engendered among them a self-respect, and yet a modest desire to be much wiser than they were, the first evinced in their well-balanced bearing and manner of speech, when he stopped to ask a question, the second in the announcements of their popular studies and amusements on the public walls. These considerations, and a host of such, made his walk a memorable one. "'I, too, am but a little part of a great whole,' he began to think, "'and to be serviceable to myself and others, or to be happy, "'I must cast my interest into and draw it out of the common stock.' Although he had arrived at his journey's end for the day by noon, he had since insensibly walked about the town so far and so long that the lamplighters were now at their work in the streets, and the shops were sparkling up brilliantly. Thus reminded to turn towards his quarters, he was in the act of doing so, when a very little hand crept into his, and a very little voice said, "'Oh, if you please, I'm lost.' He looked down, and saw a very little fair-haired girl. "'Yes,' she said, confirming her words with a serious nod, "'I am indeed. I am lost.' Greatly perplexed, he stopped, looked about him for help, descried none, and said, bending low, "'Where do you live, my child?' "'I don't know where I live,' she returned. "'I am lost.' "'What is your name?' "'Polly.' "'What is your other name?' The reply was prompt, but unintelligible. Imitating the sound as he caught it, he hazarded the guess, uh, "'Trevitz?' "'Oh, no,' said the child, shaking her head. "'Nothing like that.' 
"'Say it again, little one.' "'An unpromising business, for this time it had a quite different sound. "'He made the venture. Uh, "'Taverns?' "'Oh, no,' said the child. "'Nothing like that.' "'Once more, uh, let us try it again, dear. "'A most hopeless business. "'This time it swelled into four syllables. "'It can't be a tapitava,' said Barbox Brothers, "'rubbing his head with his hat in discomfiture. "'No, it ain't,' the child quietly assented. "'On her trying this unfortunate name once more, "'with extraordinary efforts at distinctness, "'it swelled into eight syllables at least.' Uh, "'I think,' said Barbox Brothers, with a desperate air of resignation, "'that we had better give it up.' "'But I'm lost,' said the child, nestling her little hand more closely in his. "'And you'll take care of me, won't you?' "'If ever a man were disconcerted by division between compassion on the one hand "'and the very imbecility of irresolution on the other, here the man was.' "'Lost!' he repeated, looking down at the child. "'I'm sure I am. Uh, what is to be done?' "'Where do you live?' asked the child, looking up at him wistfully. "'Over there,' he answered, pointing vaguely in the direction of his hotel. "'Hadn't we better go there?' said the child. "'Really,' he replied, "'I don't know but what we had.' So they set off, hand in hand, he, though through comparison of himself against his little companion, with a clumsy feeling on him as if he had just developed into a foolish giant, she, clearly elevated in her own tiny opinion by having got him so neatly out of his embarrassment. "'We're going to have dinner when we get there, I suppose,' said Polly. Eh, w "'Well,' he rejoined, I, "'yes, I suppose we are.' "'Do you like your dinner?' asked the child. "'Why, on the whole,' said Barbox Brothers, "'yes, I think I do.' "'I do mine,' said Polly. "'Have you any brothers and sisters?' "'No.' "'Have you?' "'Mine are dead.' "'Oh,' said Barbox Brothers. With that absurd sense of unwieldiness of mind and body weighing him down, he would not have known how to pursue the conversation beyond this curt rejoinder, but that the child was always ready for him. "'What?' she asked, turning her soft hand coaxingly in his. "'Are you going to do to amuse me after dinner?' "'Upon my soul, Polly,' exclaimed Barbox Brothers, very much at a loss, "'I have not the slightest idea.' "'Then I tell you what,' said Polly, "'have you got any cards at your house?' Uh, "'Plenty,' said Barbox Brothers, in a boastful vein. "'Very well. Then I'll build houses, and you shall look at me. "'You mustn't blow, you know.' "'Oh, no,' said Barbox Brothers. Uh, "'No, no, no. No blowing. Blowing's not fair.' He flattered himself that he had said this pretty well for an idiotic monster, but the child, instantly perceiving the awkwardness of his attempt to adapt himself to her level, utterly destroyed his hopeful opinion of himself by saying compassionately, "'What a funny man you are!' Feeling after this melancholy failure, as if he every minute grew bigger and heavier in person and weaker in mind, Barbox gave himself up for a bad job. No giant ever submitted more meekly to be led in triumph by all-conquering Jack 
than he to be bound in slavery to Polly. "'Do you know any stories?' she asked him. He was reduced to the humiliating confession. Uh, "'No.' "'What a dunce you must be, mustn't you?' said Polly. He was reduced to the humiliating confession. Uh, "'Yes.' "'Would you like me to teach you a story? But you must remember it, you know, and be able to tell it right to somebody else afterwards.' He professed that it would afford him the highest mental gratification to be taught a story, and that he would humbly endeavour to retain it in his mind, whereupon Polly, giving her hand a new little turn in his, expressive of settling down for enjoyment, commenced a long romance, of which every relishing clause began with the words, "'So this,' or "'And so this,' as "'So this boy,' or "'So this fairy,' and so this pie was four yards round and two yards and a quarter deep. The interest of the romance was derived from the intervention of this fairy to punish this boy for having a greedy appetite. To achieve which purpose the fairy made this pie, and this boy ate and ate and ate, and his cheek swelled and swelled and swelled. There were many tributary circumstances, but the forcible interest culminated in the total consumption of this pie— and the bursting of this boy. Truly he was a fine sight, Barbox Brothers, with serious attentive face and ear bent down, much jostled on the pavements of the busy town, but afraid of losing a single incident of the epic, lest he should be examined in it by and by, and found deficient. Then they arrived at the hotel, and there he had to say at the bar, and said awkwardly enough, um, I have found a little girl. The whole establishment turned out to look at the little girl. Nobody knew her, nobody could make out her name as she set it forth, except one chambermaid who said it was Constantinople, which it wasn't. I will dine with my young friend in a private room, said Barbox Brothers to the hotel authorities. "'And perhaps you will be so good as to let the police know that the pretty baby is here. "'I suppose she's sure to be inquired for soon, if she has not been already. "'Come along, Polly.' "'Perfectly at ease and peace, Polly came along, "'but finding the stairs rather stiff work was carried up by Barbox Brothers. "'The dinner was a most transcendent success, and the Barbox sheepishness.' under Polly's directions how to mince her meat for her, and how to diffuse gravy over the plate with a liberal and equal hand, was another fine sight. "'And now,' said Polly, "'while we're at dinner, you be good, and tell me that story I taught you.' With the tremors of a civil service examination upon him, and very uncertain indeed, not only as to the epoch at which the pie appeared in history, but also as to the measurements of that indispensable fact, Barbox Brothers made a shaky beginning, but under encouragement did very fairly. There was a want of breath observable in his rendering of the cheeks, as well as the appetite of the boy, and there was a certain tameness in his fairy, referable to an undercurrent of desire to account for her. Still, as the first lumbering performance of a good-humoured monster, it passed muster. "'I told you to be good,' said Polly, "'and you are good, aren't you?' "'I hope so,' replied Barbox Brothers. 
Such was his deference that Polly, elevated on a platform of sofa-cushions in a chair at his right hand, encouraged him with a pat or two on the face from the greasy bowl of her spoon, and even with a gracious kiss. In getting on her feet upon her chair, however, to give him this last reward, she toppled forward among the dishes, and caused him to exclaim as he effected her rescue, "'Grace angels! Phew, I thought we were in the fire, Polly!' "'What a coward you are, ain't you?' said Polly, when replaced. Uh, "'Yes, I am rather nervous,' he replied. Oh, "'Don't, Polly, don't flourish your spoon, or you'll go over sideways. Uh, "'Don't tilt up your legs when you laugh, Polly, or you'll go over backwards. "'Oh, Polly, Polly, Polly!' said Barbox Brothers, nearly succumbing to despair. "'We are environed with dangers.' Indeed, he could descry no security from the pitfalls that were yawning for Polly, but in proposing to her, after dinner, to sit upon a low stool. "'I will, if you will,' said Polly. So, as peace of mind should go before all, he begged the waiter to wheel aside the table, bring a pack of cards, a couple of footstools, and a screen, and close in Polly and himself before the fire, as if it were a snug room within the room. Then, finest sign of all, was Barbox Brothers on his footstool, with a pint decanter on the rug, contemplating Polly, as she built successfully, and growing blue in the face with holding his breath, lest he should blow the house down. "'How you stare, don't you?' said Polly, in a houseless pause. Detected in the ignoble fact, he felt obliged to admit apologetically, uh, "'I'm afraid I was looking rather hard at you, Polly.' "'Why do you stare?' asked Polly. "'I cannot,' he murmured to himself, recall why. "'I don't know, Polly.' "'You must be a simpleton to do things and not know why, mustn't you?' said Polly. In spite of which reproof, he looked at the child again intently, as she bent her head over her card structure, her rich curls shading her face. "'It is impossible.' he thought, that I can ever have seen this pretty baby before. Can I have dreamt of her in some sorrowful dream? He could make nothing of it. So he went into the building trade as a journeyman under Polly, and they built three stories high, four stories high, even five. "'I say, who do you think is coming?' asked Polly, rubbing her eyes after tea. He guessed, um, "'The waiter?' said Polly. The dustman. I'm getting sleepy. A new embarrassment for Barbox Brothers. I don't think I'm going to be fetched tonight, said Polly. What do you think? He thought not either. After another quarter of an hour, the dustman, not merely impending, but actually arriving, recourse was had to the Constantinopolitan chambermaid who cheerily undertook that the child should sleep in a comfortable and wholesome room, which she herself would share. Uh, "'And I know you will be careful, won't you?' said Barbox Brothers, as a new fear dawned upon him, that she, she don't fall out of bed. Polly found this so highly entertaining that she was under the necessity of clutching him round the neck with both arms, as he sat on his footstool picking up the cards, and rocking him to and fro with her dimpled chin on his shoulder. "'Oh, what a coward you are, ain't you?' said Polly. "'Do you fall out of bed?' Uh, "'Not generally, Polly.' "'No more do I,' 
With that, Polly gave him a reassuring hug or two to keep him going, and then giving that confiding mite of a hand of hers to be swallowed up in the hand of the Constantinopolitan chambermaid, trotted off, chattering, without a vestige of anxiety. He looked after her, had the screen removed and the table and the chairs replaced, and still looked after her. He paced the room for half an hour. A most engaging little creature, but it's not that. A most winning little voice, but it's not that. That has much to do with it, but there is something more. How can it be that I seem to know this child? What was it she imperfectly recalled to me when I felt her touch in the street, and looking down at her, saw her looking up at me? Mr. Jackson? With a start, he turned towards the sound of the subdued voice, and saw his answer standing at the door. "'Oh, Mr. Jackson, do not be severe with me. Speak a word of encouragement to me, I beseech you.' "'You are Polly's mother?' "'Yes.' "'Yes. Polly herself might come to this one day. As you see what the rose was in its faded leaves, as you see what the summer growth of the woods was in their wintry branches.' So Polly might be traced one day in a careworn woman like this, with her hair turned grey. Before him were the ashes of a dead fire that had once burned bright. This was the woman he had loved. This was the woman he had lost. Such had been the constancy of his imagination to her. So had time spared her under its withholding, that now, seeing how roughly the inexorable hand had struck her, his soul was filled with pity and amazement. He led her to a chair, and stood leaning on a corner of the chimney-piece, with his head resting on his hand, and his face half averted. "'Did you see me in the street, and show me to your child?' he asked. "'Yes.' "'Is the little creature, then, a party to deceit?' "'I hope there's no deceit. I said to her—' "'We have lost our way, and I must try to find mine by myself. "'Go to that gentleman and tell him you're lost. "'You shall be fetched by and by. "'Perhaps you have not thought how very young she is.' "'She is very self-reliant. "'Perhaps because she is so young.' "'He asked, after a short pause, "'Why did you do this?' "'Oh, Mr. Jackson, do you ask me?' in the hope you might see something in my innocent child to soften your heart towards me, not only towards me, but towards my husband. He suddenly turned round, and walked to the opposite end of the room. He came back again with a slower step, and resumed his former attitude, saying, "'I thought you had emigrated to America.' "'We did, but life went ill with us there, and we came back.' "'Do you live in this town?' "'Yes. I am a daily teacher of music here. My husband is a bookkeeper.' "'Are you—forgive my asking—poor?' "'We earn enough for our wants. That is not our distress. My husband is very, very ill, of a lingering disorder. He will never recover.' Yeah, "'You check yourself. If it is for want of the encouraging word you spoke of, take it from me. I cannot forget the old time, Beatrice. "'God bless you,' she replied with a burst of tears, and gave him her trembling hand. Uh, "'Compose yourself. I cannot be composed, if you are not. For to see you weep distresses me beyond expression. Speak freely to me. Trust me.' 
She shaded her face with her veil, and after a little while spoke calmly. Her voice had the ring of Polly's. "'It is not that my husband's mind is at all impaired by his bodily suffering, for I assure you that is not the case. But in his weakness, and in his knowledge that he is incurably ill, he cannot overcome the ascendancy of one idea. It preys upon him, embitters every moment of his painful life, and will shorten it.' She stopping, he said again, "'Speak freely to me. Trust me.' "'We have had five children before this, darling, and they all lie in their little graves. He believes that they have withered away under a curse, and that it will blight this child like the rest.' "'Under what curse?' "'Both I and he have it on our conscience that we tried you very heavily.' "'and I do not know but that if I were as ill as he, "'I might suffer in my mind as he does. "'This is the constant burden. "'I believe, Beatrice, that I was the only friend "'that Mr. Jackson ever cared to make, "'though I was so much his junior. "'The more influence he acquired in the business, "'the higher he advanced me, "'and I was alone in his private confidence. "'I came between him and you, and, and I took you from him. "'We were both secret.' and the blow fell when he was wholly unprepared. The anguish it caused a man so compressed must have been terrible, the wrath it awakened inappeasable. So a curse came to be invoked on our poor pretty little flowers, and they fall. "'And you, Beatrice?' he asked, when she had ceased to speak, and there had been a silence afterwards. "'How say you?' "'Until within these few weeks I was afraid of you.' "'and I believed that you would never, never forgive.' "'Until within these few weeks,' he repeated. "'Have you changed your opinion of me within these few weeks?' "'Yes.' "'For what reason?' "'I was getting some pieces of music in a shop in this town "'when, to my terror, you came in. "'As I veiled my face and stood in the dark end of the shop, I heard you explain that you wanted a musical instrument for a bedridden girl. Your voice and manner were so softened. You showed such interest in its selection. You took it away yourself with so much tenderness of care and pleasure that I knew you were a man with a most gentle heart. Oh, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Jackson, if you could have felt the refreshing rain of tears that followed for me. Was Phoebe playing at that moment on her distant couch? He seemed to hear her. I inquired in the shop where you lived, but could get no information. As I had heard you say you were going back by the next train, but you did not say where, I resolved to visit the station at about that time of day as often as I could, between my lessons on the chance of seeing you again. I have been there very often, but saw you no more until today. You were meditating as you walked the street, but the calm expression of your face emboldened me to send my child to you, and when I saw you bend your head to speak tenderly to her, I pray to God to forgive me for having ever brought a sorrow on it. I now pray to you to forgive me, and to forgive my husband. I was very young. He was young, too, and in the ignorant hardihoodness of such a time of life, we don't know what we do to those who have undergone more discipline. "'You generous man, you good man, so raise me up and make nothing of my crime against you.' For he would not see her on her knees, and soothed her as a kind father might have soothed an erring daughter. 
Thank you. Bless you. Thank you. When he next spoke, it was after having drawn aside the window curtain and looked out a while. And then he only said, Is Polly asleep? Yes. As I came in, I met her going away upstairs and put her to bed myself. Leave her with me for tomorrow, Beatrice, and write me your address on this leaf of my pocket-book. In the evening I will bring her home to you and to her father. Hello, cried Polly, putting her saucy sunny face in at the door next morning when breakfast was ready. I thought I was fetched last night. So you were, Polly, but I asked leave to keep you here for the day and to take you home in the evening. Upon my word, said Polly, you're very cool, ain't you? However, Polly seemed to think it a good idea, and added, "'I suppose I must give you a kiss, though you are cool.' The kiss given and taken, they sat down to breakfast in a highly conversational tone. "'Of course you're going to amuse me,' said Polly. "'Oh, of course,' said Barbox Brothers. In the pleasurable height of her anticipations, Polly found it indispensable to put down her piece of toast— cross one of her little fat knees over the other, and bring her little fat right hand down into her left hand with a business-like slap. After this gathering of herself together, Polly, by that time a mere heap of dimples, asked in a wheedling manner, "'What are we going to do, you dear old thing?' Mm, "'Why, I was thinking,' said Barbox Brothers, "'but uh, are you fond of horses, Polly?' "'Ponies I am,' said Polly. "'especially when their tails are long. "'But horses, no, too big, you know.' "'Well,' pursued Barbox Brothers, "'in a spirit of grave, mysterious confidence, "'adapted to the importance of the consultation, "'I did see yesterday, Polly, on the walls, "'pictures of two long-tailed ponies speckled all over.' "'Oh, no, no, no!' cried Polly, in an ecstatic desire to linger on the charming details. "'Not speckled all over?' "'Speckled all over. Which ponies jump through hoops?' Oh, "'No, no, no!' cried Polly, as before. "'They never jump through hoops.' "'Yes, they do. Oh, I assure you they do. And eat pie in pinafores.' "'Ponies eating pie in pinafores?' said Polly. "'What a storyteller you are, ain't you?' Yeah, "'Upon my honour! And fire off guns!' Polly hardly seemed to see the force of the ponies resorting to firearms. "'And I was thinking,' pursued the exemplary Barbox, uh, "'that if you and I were to go to the circus where these ponies are, "'it would do our constitutions good.' "'Does that mean amuse me?' inquired Polly. "'What long words you do use, don't you?' Apologetic for having wandered out of his depth, he replied, "'That means amuse us. That is exactly what it means. There are many other wonders besides the ponies, and we shall see them all. Ladies and gentlemen in spangled dresses, and elephants, and lions, and tigers.' Polly became observant of the teapot, with a curled-up nose indicating some uneasiness of mind. "'They never get out, of course,' she remarked, as a mere truism. "'The elephants and lions and tigers, oh, dear, no!' "'Oh, dear, no,' said Polly. "'And, of course, nobody's afraid of the ponies shooting anybody.' "'No, not the least in the world,' 
"'No, not the least in the world,' said Polly. "'I was also thinking,' proceeded Barbox, "'that if we were to look in at the toy-shop to choose a doll—' "'Not dressed!' cried Polly, with a clap of her hands. "'No, no, no, not dressed!' "'Fully dressed, together with a house and all things necessary for housekeeping.' Polly gave a little scream and seemed in danger of falling into a swoon of bliss. "'What a darling you are!' she languidly exclaimed, leaning back in her chair. "'Come and be hugged, or I must come and hug you.' This resplendent programme was carried into execution with the utmost rigour of the law. It being essential to make the purchase of the doll its first feature, or that lady would have lost the ponies, the toy-shop expedition took precedence. Polly, in the magic warehouse, with a doll as large as herself under each arm, and a neat assortment of some twenty more on view on the counter, did indeed present a spectacle of indecision, not quite compatible with unalloyed happiness, but the light crowd passed. The lovely specimen, oftenest chosen, oftenest rejected, and finally abided by, was of Circassian descent, possessing as much boldness of beauty as was reconcilable with extreme feebleness of mouth, and combining a sky-blue silk pelisse with rose-coloured satin trousers and a black velvet hat, which this fair stranger to our northern shores would seem to have founded on the portraits of the late Duchess of Kent. The name this distinguished foreigner brought with her from beneath the glowing skies of a sunny clime was, on Polly's authority, Miss Melucca, and the costly nature of her outfit as a housekeeper, from the bar-box coffers, may be inferred from the fact that her silver teaspoons were as large as her kitchen poker, and that the proportions of her watch exceeded those of her frying-pan. Miss Melucca was graciously pleased to express her entire approbation of the circus, and so was Polly, for the ponies were speckled and brought down nobody when they fired, and the savageries of the wild beasts appeared to be mere smoke, which article, in fact, they did produce in large quantities from their insides. The barbox absorption in the general subject throughout the realisation of these delights was again a sight to see. Nor was it less worthy to behold at dinner when he drank to Miss Melucca, tied stiff in a chair opposite to Polly, the fair Circassian possessing an unbendable spine, and even induced the waiter to assist in carrying out with due decorum the prevailing glorious idea. To wind up, there came the agreeable fever of getting Miss Maluka and all her wardrobe and rich possessions into a fly, with Polly, to be taken home. But by that time Polly had become unable to look upon such accumulated joys with waking eyes, and had withdrawn her consciousness into the wonderful paradise of a child's sleep. "'Sleep, Polly, sleep,' said Barbox Brothers, as her head dropped on his shoulder. "'You shall not fall out of this bed easily, at any rate.' What rustling piece of paper he took from his pocket and carefully folded into the bosom of Polly's frock shall not be mentioned. He said nothing about it, and nothing shall be said about it. They drove to a modest suburb of the great ingenious town, and stopped at the forecourt of a small house. "'Do not wake the child,' said Barbox Brothers softly to the driver. I will carry her in as she is. Greeting the light at the open door, which was held by Polly's mother, 
Polly's bearer passed on with mother and child into a ground-floor room. There, stretched on a sofa, lay a sick man, sorely wasted, who covered his eyes with his emaciated hand. "'Tresham,' said Barbox, in a kindly voice, "'I have brought you back your Polly, fast asleep. Give me your hand, and tell me you are better.' The sick man reached forth his right hand, and bowed his head over the hand into which it was taken, and kissed it. "'Thank you, thank you. I may say that I am well and happy.' "'That's brave,' said Barbox. "'Tresham, I have a fancy. Can you make room for me beside you here?' He sat down on the sofa as he said the words, cherishing the plump, peachy cheek which lay uppermost on his shoulder. "'I have a fancy, Chesham. I'm getting quite an old fellow now, you know, and old fellows may take fancies into their heads sometimes. To give up Polly, having found her, to no one but you. Will you take her from me?' As the father held out his arms for the child, each of the two men looked steadily at each other. "'She is very dear to you, Tresham.' Oh, dear.' "'God bless her. It's not much, Polly,' he continued, turning his eyes upon her peaceful face, as he apostrophized her. "'It's not much, Polly, for a blind and sinful man to invoke a blessing on something so far better than himself as a little child is. But it would be much, much upon his cruel head, and much upon his guilty soul, if he could be so wicked as to invoke a curse.' He had better have a millstone round his neck and be cast into the deepest sea. Live and thrive, my pretty baby. Here he kissed her. Live and prosper, and become in time the mother of other little children, like the angels who behold the father's face. He kissed her again, gave her up gently to both her parents, and went out. But he went not to Wales. No, he never went to Wales. He went straightway for another stroll about the town, and he looked in upon the people at their work, and at their play, here, there, everywhere, and where not. For he was Barbox Brothers and Company now, and had taken thousands of partners into the solitary firm. He had at length got back to his hotel-room, and was standing before his fire, refreshing himself with a glass of hot drink, which he stood upon the chimney-piece, when he heard the town clock striking and referring to his watch, found the evening to have so slipped away that they were striking twelve. As he put up his watch again, his eyes met those of his reflection in the chimney-glass. "'Why, it's your birthday already,' he said, smiling. "'You're looking very well. I wish you many happy returns of the day.' He had never before bestowed that wish upon himself. "'By Jupiter!' he discovered. It alters the whole case of running away from one's birthday. It's a thing to explain to Phoebe. Besides, here's quite a long story to tell her that has sprung out of the road with no story. I'll go back instead of going on. I'll go back by my friend Lamps's up X presently. He went back to Mugby Junction, and in point of fact he established himself at Mugby Junction. It was the convenient place to live in for brightening Phoebe's life. It was the convenient place to live in for having her taught music by Beatrice. It was the convenient place to live in for occasionally borrowing Polly. 
It was the convenient place to live in, for being joined at will to all sorts of agreeable places and persons. So he became settled there, and his house standing in an elevated situation. It is noteworthy of him in conclusion, as Polly herself might, not irreverently, have put it, there was an old barbox who lived on a hill, and if he ain't gone, he lives there still. Here follows the substance of what was seen, heard, or otherwise picked up, by the gentleman for nowhere, in his careful study of the junction. End of Barbox Brothers and Company Main Line, The Boy at Mugby This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1 Main Line, The Boy at Mugby By Charles Dickens I am the boy at Mugby. That's about what I am. You don't know what I mean? What a pity. But I think you do. I think you must. Look here. I am the boy at what is called the refreshment room at Mugby Junction. And what's proudest boast is that it never yet refreshed a mortal being. Up in a corner of the down refreshment room at Mugby Junction, in the height of 27 cross drafts, I've often counted them while they brushed the first-class hair 27 ways. Behind the bottles, among the glasses, bounded on the northwest by the beer, stood pretty far to the right of a metallic object that's at times the tea urn and at times a soup tureen, according to the nature of the last twang imparted to its contents, which are the same groundwork, fended off from the traveler by a barrier of stale sponge cakes erected atop of the counter, and lastly exposed sideways to the glare of our missus's eye. You ask a boy, so situated, next time you stop in a hurry at Mugby for anything to drink? you take particular notice that he'll try to seem not to hear you, that he'll appear in an absent manner to survey the line through a transparent medium composed of your head and body, and that he won't serve you as long as you can possibly bear it. That's me. What a lark it is. We are the model establishment. We are at Mugby. Other refreshment rooms send their imperfect young ladies up to be finished off by our missus. For some of the young ladies, when they're new to the business, come into it mild. Ah, our missus, she soon takes that out of them. Why, I originally come into the business meek myself. But our missus, she soon took that out of me. What a delightful lark it is. I look upon us refreshmenters as occupying the only proudly independent footing on the line. There's papers, for instance. My honorable friend, if he will allow me to call him so, him as belongs to Smith's bookstall, why he no more dares to be up to our refreshmenting games than he dares to jump atop of a locomotive with her steam at full pressure and cut away upon her alone, driving himself at limited mail speed. Papers, he'd get his head punched at every compartment, first, second, and third, the whole length of the train. He was to venture to imitate my demeanor. It's the same with the porters, the same with the guards, the same with the ticket clerks, the same the whole way up to the secretary, traffic manager, or very chairman. There ain't a one among em on the nobly independent footing we are. 
Did you ever catch one of them when you wanted anything of him, making a system of surveying the line through a transparent medium composed of your head and body? I should hope not. You should see our bandolining room at Mugby Junction. It's led to, by the door behind the counter, which you'll notice usually stands ajar, and it's the room where our missus and our young ladies bandolines their hair. You should see him at it, betwixt trains, bandolining away, as if they was anointing themselves for the combat. When you're telegraphed, you should see their noses all a-going up with scorn, as if it was part of the working of the same cook and wheatstone electrical machinery. You should hear our missus give the word, Here comes the beast to be fed! And then you should see him indignantly skipping across the line, from the up to the down, or vice versa, and begin to pitch the stale pastry into the plates, and chuck the sawdust sandwiches under the glass covers, and then get out the, <laughs> the sherry, oh my eye, my eye, for your refreshment. It's only in the Isle of the Brave and the Land of the Free, by which, of course, I means to say Britannia, that refreshmenting is so effective, so wholesome, so constitutional, a check upon the public. There was a foreigner, which having politely, with his hat off, beseeched our young ladies and our misses for a little gloss of parodity, and having had the line surveyed through him by all and no other acknowledgment, was a proceeding at last to help himself, as seems to be the custom in his own country, when our missus, with her hair almost to come and unbend linen, with rage, and her eyes omitting sparks, flew at him, clutched the decanter out of his hand, and said, Put it down, I won't allow that. The foreigner turned pale, stepped back with his arms stretched out in front of him, his hands clasped, and his shoulders riz, and exclaimed, Ah! Is it possible, this? That these disdainous females and this ferocious old woman are placed here by the administration, not only to empoison the voyagers, but to affront them? Great heavens! How arrives it? The English people! Or is he then a slave? Or idiot? Another time, a merry wide-awake American gent had tried the sawdust and spit out and had tried the sherry, and spit that out, and had tried in vain to sustain exhausted nature upon butterscotch, and had been rather extra bandolined and line-surveyed through, when, as the bell was ringing, and he paid our missus, he says, very loud and good-tempered, I tell you what is, ma'am, I laugh, there, I laugh, I do, I ought to had seen most things, for I hail from the unlimited side of the Atlantic Ocean, and I have traveled right slick over the limited, head on through Jerusalem in the east, and likewise France and Italy, Europe, old world, and am now upon track to the chief European village. But such an institution as you, and your young ladies, and your fixin' solid and liquid, afore the glorious tarnal I never did see yet. And if I ain't found the eighth wonder of monarchical creation in finding you, and your young ladies, and you are fixin' solid and liquid, all as aforesaid established in a country where the people's aired not absolutely lunatics? I am extra double darned with a nip and a frizzle to the intermost grit. Wherefore there I laugh. I do, ma'am, I laugh. And so he went, stamping and shaking his sides along the platform all the way to his own compartment. I think it was her standing up again the foreigner, as gives our missus the idea of going over to France, 
and drawing a comparison between refreshmenting as followed among the frog-eaters and refreshmenting as triumph in the isle of the brave and the land of the free by which of course i mean to say again britannia our young ladies miss whiff miss piff and mrs sniff were unanimously opposed to her going for as they says to our missus one and all it is well be known to the ends of the earth as no other nation except britannia has an idea of anything but above all of business why then should you tire yourself to prove what is already proved our missus however being a teaser at all pints stood out grim obstinate and got a return pass by southeastern title to go right through if such should be her dispositions to marseilles sniff is husband to mrs sniff and is a regular insignificant cove he looks out of the sawdust apartment in the back room and it's sometimes when we are very hard put up to let it in behind the counter with a corkscrew but never when it can be helped his demeanor toward the public being disgustingly servile how mrs sniff ever comes so far to lower herself as to marry him i don't know but i suppose he does and i should think he wished he didn't for he leads an awful life mrs sniff couldn't be much harder with him if he was public similarly miss whiff and miss piff taking the tone of mrs sniff they shoulder sniff about when he is let in with a corkscrew and they whisk things out of his hands when in his servility he is going to let the public have em and they snap him up when in the crawling baseness of his spirit he is a-going to answer a public question and they draw more tears into his eyes than ever the mustard does which he all day long lays onto the sawdust but it ain't strong once when sniff had the repulsiveness to reach across to get the milk pot to hand over for a baby i see our missus in her rage catch him by both his shoulders and spin him out into the bandolining room but mrs sniff how different she's the one she's the one as you'll notice to be always looking another way from you when you look at her she's the one with the small waist buckled up tight in front and with the lace cuffs at her wrists which she puts on the edge of the counter before her and stands a smoothin while the public foams this smoothin the cuffs and lookin another way while the public foams is the last accomplishment taught to the young ladies that come to mugby to be finished by our missus and it's always taught by mrs sniff when our missus went away upon her journey mrs sniff was left in charge she did hold the public in check most beautifully in all my time i never see half so many cups of tea given without milk to people as wanted with it nor half so many cups of tea with milk given to people who wanted it without when foaming ensued mrs sniff would say then you'd better settle it among yourselves and change with one another it was a most highly delicious lark i enjoyed the refreshmenting business more than ever and was so glad i had took to it when young our missus returned it got circulated among the young ladies and it as it might be penetrated to me through the crevices of the bandolining room as she had horrors to reveal if revelation so contemptible could be dignified with the name agitation became awakened excitement was up in the stirrups expectation stood a tiptoe at length it was put forth that on our slackest evening in the week and at our slackest time in that evening betwixt trains our missus would give her views of foreign refreshmenting in the bandolining room it was arranged tasteful for the purpose the bandolining table and glass was hidden in a corner an armchair was elevated on a packing case for our missus occupation a table and a tumbler of water no sherry in it thank ye was placed beside it 
Two of the pupils, the season being autumn, and hollyhocks and dahlias being in, ornamented the wall with three devices in those flowers. On one might be read, May Albion never learn. On another, Keep the public down. On another, Our refreshmenting charter. The whole had a beautiful appearance, with which the beauty of the sentiments corresponded. On our Mrs. Brow was wrote severity as she ascended the fatal platform. Not that that was anything new. Miss Whiff and Miss Piff sat at her feet. Three chairs from the waiting room might have been perceived by an average eye in front of her, on which the pupils was accommodated. Behind them, a very close observer might have discerned a boy. Myself. Where, said our missus, glancing gloomily around, is Sniff. I thought it better, answered Mrs. Sniff, that he should not be let to come in. He is such an ass. No doubt, assented our missus, but for that reason, is it not desirable to improve his mind? Oh, nothing will ever improve him, said Mrs. Sniff. However, pursued our missus, call him in, Ezekiel. I called him in. The appearance of the low-minded cove was hailed with disapprobation from all sides, on account of his having brought his corkscrew with him. He pleaded the force of habit. The force, said Mrs. Sniff, don't let us have you talking about force for gracious sake. There, do stand still where you are, with your back against the wall. He is a smiling piece of vacancy, and he smiled in a mean way, in which he will even smile at the public if he gets a chance. Language can say no meaner of him. And he stood upright near the door, with the back of his head against the wall, as if he was a-waiting for someone to come and measure his height for the army. I should not enter, ladies, said our missus, on the revolting disclosures I am about to make, if it was not in the hope that they will cause you to be yet more implacable in the exercise of the power you wield in a constitutional country, and yet more devoted to the constitutional motto which I see before me. It was behind her, but the words sounded better so. May Albion never learn. Here the pupils, as had made the motto, admired it, and cried, Here, here, here! Sniff, showing an inclination to join in chorus, got himself frowned down by every brow. The baseness of the French, pursued our missus, as displayed in the fawning nature of their refreshmenting equals, if not surpasses, anything that was ever heard of the baseness of the celebrated Buonaparte. Miss Whiff, Miss Piff, and me, we drew a heavy breath, equal to saying, we thought as much. Miss Whiff and Miss Piff, seeming to object to my drawing mine along with theirs, I drawed another to aggravate him. Shall I be believed, says our missus with flashing eyes, when I tell you that no sooner had I set my foot upon that treacherous shore? Here Sniff, either busting out mad, or thinking aloud, says in a low voice, feet, plural, you know. The cowering that came upon him when he was spurned by all eyes, added to his being beneath contempt, was sufficient punishment for a cove so groveling. In the midst of a silence rendered more impressive by the turned-up female noses with which it was pervaded, our missus went on. Shall I be believed when I tell you that no sooner had I landed, this word with a killing look at Sniff, on that treacherous shore that I was ushered into a refreshment room where there were, I do not exaggerate, actually eatable things to eat. A groan burst from the ladies. I not only did myself the honor of jining, but also of lengthening it out. Where there were, our missus added, not only eatable things to eat, 
but also drinkable things to drink. A murmur, swelling almost to a scream, arise. Miss Piff, trembling with indignation, called out, Name! I will name, said our missus. There was roast fowls, hot and cold. There was smoking roast veal surrounded with browned potatoes. There was hot soup, with, again I ask, shall I be credited? Nothing bitter in it. And no flour to choke off the consumer. There was a variety of cold dishes set off with jelly. There was salad. There was, mark me, fresh pastry. And that of the light construction. There was a luscious show of fruit. There was bottles and decanters of sound small wine, of every size and adapted to every pocket. The same odious statement will apply to brandy. And these were set out upon the counter so that all could help themselves. Our Mrs. Lips so quivered that Mrs. Sniff, though scarcely less convulsed than she were, got up and held the tumbler to them. This, proceeds our Mrs., was my first unconstitutional experience. Well would it have been if it had been my last and worst. But no! As I proceeded further into that enslaved and ignorant land, its aspect became more hideous. I need not explain to this assembly the ingredients of formation of the British refreshment sandwich. Universal laughter, except from Sniff, who, as a sandwich cutter, shook his head in a state of the utmost dejection as he stood with it again in the wall. Well, said our missus with dilated nostrils, take a fresh, crisp, long, crusty penny loaf made of the whitest and best flour. Cut it longwise through the middle, insert a fair and nicely fitting slice of ham, tie a smart piece of ribbon around the middle of the hole to bind it together, add at one end a neat wrapper of clean white paper by which to hold it, and the universal French refreshment sandwich bursts upon your disgusted vision. A cry of shame from all, except stiff, which rubbed his stomach with a soothing hand. I need not, said our missus, explain to this assembly the usual formation and fitting of the British refreshment room. No, no, and laughter. Sniff again, shaking his head in low spirits against the wall. Well, said our missus, what would you say to a general decoration of everything? To hangings, sometimes elegant, to easy velvet furniture, to abundance of little tables, to abundance of little seats, to brisk bright waiters, to great convenience, to a pervading cleanliness and tastefulness, positively addressing the public and making the beast thinking itself worth the pains? Contemptuous fury on the part of all the ladies. Mrs. Sniff looking as if she wanted someone to hold her, and everyone else looking as if they'd rather not. Three times, said her missus, working herself into a truly tremendous state. Three times did I see these shameful things only between the coast and Paris, and not counting either, at Hezebrookel, at Arras, at Amiens. But worst remains. Tell me, what would you call a person who should propose in England that there should be kept, say at our own model Mugby Junction, pretty baskets, each holding an assorted cold lunch and dessert for one, each at a certain fixed price, and each within a passenger's power to take away, to empty in the carriage at perfect leisure, and to return at another station fifty or a hundred miles further on? There was disagreement what such a person should be called. Whether revolutionist, atheist, bright, I said him, or un-English, Miss Piff reached her shrill opinion last in these words, A malignant maniac. 
I adopt, says our missus, the brand set upon such a person by the righteous indignation of my friend Miss Piff, a malignant maniac. Know, then, that that malignant maniac has sprung from the congenial soul of France, and that his malignant madness was in unchecked action on this same part of my journey. I noticed that Sniff was a rub in his hands, and that Mrs. Sniff had got her eye upon him. But I did not take more particular notice, only to the excited state in which the young ladies was, and to feel myself called upon to keep it up with a howl. On my experience south of Paris, said our missus in a deep tone, I will not expatiate. Too loathsome were the task. But fancy this. Fancy a guard coming round, with a train at full speed, to inquire how many for dinner? Fancy his telegraphing forward the number of diners? Fancy everyone expected and the table elegantly laid for the complete party? Fancy a charming dinner in a charming room, and the head cook concerned for the honor of every dish superintending in his clean white cap and jacket? Fancy the beast traveling six hundred miles on end very fast and with great punctuality, yet being taught to expect all this to be done for it? A spirited chorus of the beast. I noticed that Sniff was again a rub in his stomach with a soothing hand, and that he had drawered up one leg. But again I didn't take particular notice, looking on myself as called upon to stimulate public feeling, it being a lark besides. Putting everything together, said our missus, French refreshmenting comes to this, and oh, it comes to a nice total. First, eatable things to eat, and drinkable things to drink. A groan from the young ladies, kept up by me. Second, convenience and even elegance. Another groan from the young ladies, kept up by me. Third, moderate charges. This time, a groan from me, kept up by the young ladies. Fourth, and here, says our missus, I claim your angry sympathy, attention, common civility, nay, even politeness. Me and the young ladies regularly raging mad altogether. And I cannot in conclusion, says our missus, after her most spiteful sneer, give you a completer picture of that despicable nation, after what I have related, than assuring you that they wouldn't bear our constitutional ways and noble independence at Mugby Junction for a single month and that they would turn us to the right about and put another system in our places as soon as look at us perhaps sooner for i do not believe they have the good taste to care to look at us twice the swelling tumult was arrested in its rise sniff borne away by his servile disposition had drawn up his leg with a higher and higher relish and was now discovered to be waving his corkscrew over his head it was at this moment that mrs sniff who had kept her eye upon him like the fabled obelisk, descended upon her victim. Our missus followed them both out, and cries was heard in the sawdust department. You come into the down refreshment room, at the junction, make him believe you don't know me, and I'll pint you out with my right thumb over my shoulder, which is our missus, and which is Miss Whiff, and which is Miss Piff, and which is Mrs. Sniff. But you won't get a chance to see Sniff, cause he disappeared that night. Whether he perished tore to pieces I cannot say, but his corkscrew alone remains to bear witness to the servility of his disposition. End of Mainline, The Boy at Mugby Recording by Todd Frauds on the Fairies From the Household Words Volume 8, Number 184 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens, 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1. Frauds on the Fairies, from the Household Words, Volume 8, Number 184, by Charles Dickens. We may assume that we are not singular in entertaining a very great tenderness for the fairy literature of our childhood. What enchanted us then, and is captivating a million of young fancies now, has at the same blessed time of life enchanted vast hosts of men and women who have done their long day's work and laid their grey heads down to rest. It would be hard to estimate the amount of gentleness and mercy that has made its way among us through these slight channels. Forbearance, courtesy, consideration for the poor and aged, kind treatment of animals, the love of nature, abhorrence of tyranny and brute force. Many such good things have been first nourished in the child's heart by this powerful aid. It has greatly helped to keep us, in some sense, ever young by preserving through our worldly ways one slender track not overgrown with weeds where we may walk with children sharing their delights in an utilitarian age of all other times it is a matter of grave importance that fairy tales should be respected our english red tape is too magnificently red ever to be employed in the tying up of such trifles but every one who has considered the subject knows full well that a nation without fancy without some romance never did never can never will hold a great place under the sun the theatre having done its worst to destroy these admirable fictions and having in a most exemplary manner destroyed itself its artists and its audiences in that perversion of its duty it becomes doubly important that the little books themselves nurseries of fancy as they are should be preserved to preserve them in their usefulness they must be as much preserved in their simplicity and purity and innocent extravagance as if they were actual fact whosoever alters them to suit his own opinions whatever they are is guilty to our thinking of an act of presumption and appropriates to himself what does not belong to him we have lately observed with pain the intrusion of a whole hog of unwieldy dimensions into the fairy flower garden the rooting of the animal among the roses would in itself have awakened in us nothing but indignation our pains arise from his being violently driven in by a man of genius our own beloved friend mr george cruikshank that incomparable artist is of all men the last who should lay his exquisite hand on fairy text in his own art he understands it so perfectly and illustrates it so beautifully so humorously so wisely that he should never lay down his etching needle to edit the ogre to whom with that little instrument he can render such extraordinary justice but to editing ogres and hop-o'-my-thumbs and their families 
our dear moralist has in a rash moment taken as a means of propagating the doctrines of total abstinence prohibition of the sale of spiritous liquors free trade and popular education for the introduction of these topics he has altered the text of a fairy story and against his right to do any such thing we protest with all our might and main of his likewise altering it to advertise that excellent series of plates the bottle we say nothing more than that we foresee a new and improved edition of goody two-shoes edited by e moses and son of the dervish with the box of ointment edited by professor holloway and of jack and the beanstalk edited by mary wedlake the popular authoress of do you bruise your oats yet now it makes not the least difference to our objection whether we agree or disagree with our worthy friend mr cruikshank in the opinions he interpolates upon an old fairy story whether good or bad in themselves they are in that relation like the famous definition of a weed a thing growing up in a wrong place he has no greater moral justification in altering the harmless little books than we should have in altering his best etchings if such a precedent were followed we must soon become disgusted with the old stories into which modern personages so obtruded themselves and the stories themselves must soon be lost with seven blue beards in the field each coming at a gallop from his own platform mounted on a foaming hobby a generation or two hence would not know which was which and the great original bluebeard would be confounded with the counterfeits imagine a total abstinence edition of robinson crusoe with the rum left out imagine a peace edition with the gunpowder left out and the rum left in imagine a vegetarian edition with the goat's flesh left out imagine a kentucky edition to introduce a flogging of that tarnal old nigger friday twice a week imagine an aborigines protection society edition to deny the cannibalism and make robinson embrace the amiable savages whenever they landed robinson crusoe would be edited out of his island in a hundred years and the island would be swallowed up in the editorial ocean among the other learned professions we have now the platform profession chiefly exercised by a new and meritorious class of commercial travellers who go about to take the sense of meetings on various articles some of a very superior description some not quite so good let us write the story of cinderella edited by one of these gentlemen doing a good stroke of business and having a rather extensive mission once upon a time a rich man and his wife were the parents of a lovely daughter she was a beautiful child and became at her own desire a member of the juvenile bands of hope when she was only four years of age when this child was only nine years of age her mother died and all the juvenile bands of hope in her district the central district number five hundred and twenty seven formed in a procession of two and two amounting to fifteen hundred and followed her to the grave singing chorus number forty two o come etc this grave was outside the town and under the direction of the local board of health which reported at certain stated intervals 
to the general board of health whitehall the motherless little girl was very sorrowful for the loss of her mother and so was her father too at first but after a year was over he married again a very cross widow lady with two proud tyrannical daughters as cross as herself he was aware that he could have made his marriage with this lady a civil process by simply making a declaration before a registrar but he was averse to this course on religious grounds and being a member of the mongolfian persuasion was married according to the ceremonies of that respectable church by the reverend jared jocks who improved the occasion he did not live long with his disagreeable wife having been shamefully accustomed to shave with warm water instead of cold which he ought to have used see medical appendix b and c his undermined constitution could not bear up against her temper and he soon died then this orphan was cruelly treated by her stepmother and the two daughters and was forced to do the dirtiest of the kitchen work to scour the saucepans wash the dishes and light the fires which did not consume their own smoke but emitted a dark vapour prejudicial to the bronchial tubes the only warm place in the house where she was free from ill-treatment was the kitchen chimney corner and as she used to sit down there among the cinders when her work was done the proud fine sisters gave her the name of cinderella about this time the king of the land who never made war against anybody and allowed everybody to make war against him which was the reason why his subjects were the greatest manufacturers on earth and always lived in security and peace gave a great feast which was to last two days this splendid banquet was to consist entirely of artichokes and gruel and from among those who were invited to it and to hear the delightful speeches after dinner the king's son was to choose a bride for himself the proud fine sisters were invited but nobody knew anything about poor cinderella and she was to stay at home she was so sweet-tempered however that she assisted the haughty creatures to dress and bestowed her admirable taste upon them as freely as if they had been kind to her neither did she laugh when they broke seventeen stay-laces in dressing for although she wore no stays herself being sufficiently acquainted with the anatomy of the human figure to be aware of the destructive effects of tight lacing she always reserved her opinion on that subject for the regenerative record price three halfpence in a neat wrapper which all good people take in and to which she was a contributor at length the wished-for moment arrived and the proud fine sisters swept away to the feast and speeches leaving cinderella in the chimney corner but she could always occupy her mind with the general question of the ocean penny postage and she had in her pocket an unread oration on that subject made by the well-known orator nehemiah nix she was lost in the fervid eloquence of the talented apostle when she became aware of the presence of one of those female relatives which it may not be generally known it is not lawful for a man to marry i allude to her grandmother why so solitary my child said the old lady to cinderella alas grandmother returned the poor girl my sisters have gone to the feast and speeches 
and here sit i in the ashes cinderella never cried the old lady with animation shall one of the band of hope despair run into the garden my dear and fetch me an american pumpkin american because in some parts of that independent country there are prohibitory laws against the sale of alcoholic drink in any form also because america produced among many great pumpkins the glory of her sex mrs colonel bloomer none but an american pumpkin will do my child cinderella ran into the garden and brought the largest american pumpkin she could find this virtuously democratic vegetable her grandmother immediately changed into a splendid coach then she sent her for six mice from the mousetrap which she changed into prancing horses free from the obnoxious and oppressive post-horse duty then to the rat-trap in the stable for a rat which she changed to a state coachman not amenable to the iniquitous assessed taxes then to look behind a watering-pot for six lizards which she changed into six footmen each with a petition in his hand ready to present to the prince signed by fifty thousand persons in favour of the early closing movement but grandmother said cinderella stopping in the midst of her delight and looking at her clothes how can i go to the palace in these miserable rags be not uneasy about that my dear returned her grandmother upon which the old lady touched her with her wand her rags disappeared and she was beautifully dressed not in the present costume of the female sex which has been proved to be at once grossly immodest and absurdly inconvenient but in rich sky-blue satin pantaloons gathered at the ankle a puce-coloured satin pelisse sprinkled with silver flowers and a very broad leghorn hat the hat was chastely ornamented with a rainbow-coloured ribbon hanging in two bell-pulls down the back the pantaloons were ornamented with a golden stripe and the effect of the whole was unspeakably sensible feminine and retiring lastly the old lady put on cinderella's feet a pair of shoes made of glass observing that but for the abolition of the duty on that article it never could have been devoted to such a purpose the effect of all such taxes being to cramp invention and embarrass the producer to the manifest injury of the consumer when the old lady had made these wise remarks she dismissed cinderella to the feast and speeches charging her by no means to remain after twelve o'clock at night the arrival of cinderella at the monster gathering produced a great excitement as a delegate from the united states had just moved that the king do take the chair and as the motion had been seconded and carried unanimously the king himself could not go forth to receive her but his royal highness the prince who was to move the second resolution went to the door to hand her from her carriage this virtuous prince being completely covered from head to foot with total abstinence medals shone as if he were attired in complete armour while the inspiring strains of the peace brass band in the gallery composed of the lambkin family eighteen in number who cannot be too much encouraged awakened additional enthusiasm the king's son handed cinderella to one of the reserved seats for pink tickets on the platform and fell in love with her immediately his appetite deserted him 
he scarcely tasted his artichokes and merely trifled with his gruel when the speeches began and cinderella wrapped in the eloquence of the two inspired delegates who occupied the entire evening in speaking to the first resolution occasionally cried here here the sweetness of her voice completed her conquest of the prince's heart but indeed the whole male portion of the assembly loved her and doubtless would have done so even if she had been less beautiful in consequence of the contrast which her dress presented to the bold and ridiculous garments of the other ladies at a quarter before twelve the second inspired delegate having drunk all the water in the decanter and fainted away the king put the question that this meeting do now adjourn until to-morrow those who were of that opinion holding up their hands and then those who were of the contrary theirs there appeared an immense majority in favour of the resolution which was consequently carried cinderella got home in safety and heard nothing all that night or all next day but the praises of the unknown lady with the sky-blue satin pantaloons when the time for the feast and speeches came around again the cross stepmother and the proud fine daughters went out in good time to secure their places as soon as they were gone cinderella's grandmother returned and changed her as before amid a blast of welcome from the lambkin family she was again handed to the pink seat on the platform by his royal highness this gifted prince was a powerful speaker and had the evening before him he rose at precisely ten minutes before eight and was greeted with tumultuous cheers and waving of handkerchiefs when the excitement had in some degree subsided he proceeded to address the meeting who were never tired of listening to speeches as no good people ever are he held them enthralled for four hours and a quarter cinderella forgot the time and hurried away so when she heard the first stroke of twelve that her beautiful dress changed back to her old rags at the door and she left one of her glass shoes behind the prince took it up and vowed that is made a declaration before a magistrate for he objected on principle to the multiplying of oaths that he would only marry the charming creature to whom that shoe belonged he accordingly caused an advertisement to that effect to be inserted in all the newspapers for the advertisement duty an impost most unjust in principle and most unfair in operation did not exist in that country neither was the stamp on newspapers known in that land which had as many newspapers as the united states and got as much good out of them innumerable ladies answered the advertisement and pretended that the shoe was theirs but every one of them was unable to get her foot into it the proud fine sisters answered it and tried their feet with no greater success then cinderella who had answered it too came forward amidst their scornful jeers and the shoe slipped on in a moment it is a remarkable tribute to the improved and sensible fashion of the dress her grandmother had given her that if she had not worn it the prince would probably never have seen her feet the marriage was solemnized with great rejoicing when the honeymoon was over the king retired from public life and was succeeded by the prince 
cinderella being now a queen applied herself to the government of the country on enlightened liberal and free principles all the people who ate anything she did not eat or who drank anything she did not drink were imprisoned for life all the newspaper offices from which any doctrine proceeded that was not her doctrine were burnt down all the public speakers proved to demonstration that if there were any individual on the face of the earth who differed from them in anything that individual was a designing ruffian and an abandoned monster she also threw open the right of voting and of being elected to public office and of making the laws to the whole of her sex who thus came to be always gloriously occupied with public life and whom nobody dared to love and they all lived happily ever afterwards frauds on the fairies once permitted we see little reason why they may not come to this and great reason why they may the vicar of wakefield was wisest when he was tired of being always wise the world is too much with us early and late leave this precious old escape from it alone End of Frauds on the Fairies from Household Words, Volume 8, Number 184. Recording by Noel Badrian, County Offaly, Ireland. Introductory Romance from the Pen of William Tinkling, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1. Introductory Romance from the Pen of William Tinkling Esquire, aged eight. This beginning part is not made out of anybody's head, you know. It's real. You must believe this beginning part more than what comes after, else you won't understand how what comes after came to be written. You must believe it all, but you must believe this most, please. I am the editor of it. Bob Redforth—he's my cousin and shaking the table on purpose—wanted to be the editor of it, but I said he shouldn't, because he couldn't. He has no idea of being an editor. Nettie Ashford is my bride. We were married in the right-hand closet in the corner of the dancing-school where we first met, with a ring—a green one—from Wilkingwater's toy-shop. I owed for it out of my pocket-money. When the rapturous ceremony was over, we all four went up the lane and let off a cannon, brought loaded in Bob Redforth's waistcoat-pocket, to announce our nuptials. It flew right up when it went off, and turned over. Next day, Lieutenant Colonel Robin Redforth was united with similar ceremonies to Alice Rainbird. This time the cannon burst with a most terrific explosion, and made a puppy bark. My peerless bride was, at the period of which we now treat, in captivity at Miss Grimmer's. Drovey and Grimmer is the partnership, and opinion is divided which is the greatest beast. The lovely bride of the Colonel was also immured in the dungeons of the same establishment. A vow was entered into between the Colonel and myself that we would cut them out on the following Wednesday when walking two and two. Under the desperate circumstances of the case, the active brain of the Colonel, combining with his lawless pursuit—he is a pirate—suggested an attack with fireworks. 
This, however, from motives of humanity, was abandoned as too expensive. Lightly armed with the paper-knife buttoned up under his jacket, and waving the dreaded black flag at the end of a cane, the Colonel took command of me at two p.m. on the eventful and appointed day. He had drawn out the plan of attack on a piece of paper, which was rolled up round a hoop-stick. He showed it to me. My position and my full-length portrait, but my real ears don't stick out horizontal, was behind a corner lamp-post, with written orders to remain there till I should see Miss Drovey fall. The Drovey who was to fall was the one in spectacles, not the one with the large lavender bonnet. At that signal I was to rush forth, seize my bride, and fight my way to the lane. There a junction would be effected between myself and the Colonel, and putting our brides behind us, between ourselves and the palings, we were to conquer or die. The enemy appeared, approached. Waving his black flag, the Colonel attacked. Confusion ensued. Anxiously I awaited my signal, but my signal came not. So far from falling, the hated drovey in spectacles appeared to me to have muffled the Colonel's head in his outlawed banner, and to be pitching into him with a parasol. The one in the lavender bonnet also performed prodigies of valour with her fists on his back. Seeing that all was for the moment lost, I fought my desperate way hand to hand to the lane. Through taking the back road, I was so fortunate as to meet nobody, and arrived there uninterrupted. It seemed an age ere the Colonel joined me. He had been to the jobbing tailors to be sewn up in several places, and attributed our defeat to the refusal of the detested drovey to fall. Finding her so obstinate, he had said to her, "'Die, recreant!' but had found her no more open to reason on that point than the other. My blooming bride appeared, accompanied by the Colonel's bride at the dancing-school next day. What? Was her face averted from me? Ha! Even so! With a look of scorn she put into my hand a bit of paper, and took another partner. On the paper was pencilled, Heavens! Can I write the word? Is my husband a cow? In the first bewilderment of my heated brain I tried to think what slanderer could have traced my family to the ignoble animal mentioned above. Vain were my endeavours. At the end of that dance I whispered the Colonel to come into the cloak-room, and I showed him the note. "'There is a syllable wanting,' he said, with a gloomy brow. "'Ha! Huh? What syllable?' was my inquiry. She asks, "'Can she write the word?' "'And no. You see, she couldn't,' said the Colonel, pointing out the passage. "'And the word was?' said I. "'Cow! Cow! Coward!' hissed the pirate colonel in my ear, and gave me back the note. Feeling that I must forever tread the earth a branded boy—person, I mean—or that I must clear up my honour, I demanded to be tried by a court-martial. The colonel admitted my right to be tried. Some difficulty was found in composing the court, on account of the emperor, France's aunt, refusing to let him come out. He was to be the president. Ere yet we had appointed a substitute, he made his escape over the back wall, and stood among us, a free monarch. The court was held on the grass by the pond. I recognised, in a certain admiral among my judges, my deadliest foe. A coconut had given rise to language that I could not brook, but confiding in my innocence, and also in the knowledge that the President of the United States, who sat next to him, owed me a knife, I braced myself for the ordeal. It was a solemn spectacle, that court. Two executioners with pinafores reversed let me in. Under the shade of an umbrella I perceived my bride, supported by the bride of the pirate colonel. The President, having reproved a little female ensign for tittering, on matter of life or death, called upon me to plead, coward or no coward, guilty or not guilty. 
I pleaded in a firm tone, no coward, and not guilty. The little female ensign being again reproved by the President for misconduct, mutinied, left the court, and threw stones. My implacable enemy, the Admiral, conducted the case against me. The Colonel's bride was called to prove that I had remained behind the corner lamp-post during the engagement. I might have been spared the anguish of my own bride's being also made a witness to the same point, but the Admiral knew where to wound me. Be still, my soul, no matter. The Colonel was then brought forward with his evidence. It was for this point that I had saved myself up, as the turning point of my case. Shaking myself free of my guards, who had no business to hold me the stupid unless I was found guilty, I asked the Colonel what he considered the first duty of a soldier. Ere he could reply, the President of the United States rose and informed the Court that my foe, the Admiral, had suggested bravery, and that prompting a witness wasn't fair. The President of the Court immediately ordered the Admiral's mouth to be filled with leaves and tied up with string. I had the satisfaction of seeing the sentence carried into effect before the proceedings went further. I then took a paper from my trousers' pocket and said, "'What do you consider, Colonel Redford, the first duty of a soldier? Is it obedience?' "'It is,' said the Colonel. "'Is that paper, please to look at it, in your hand?' "'It is,' said the Colonel. "'Is it a military sketch?' "'It is,' said the Colonel. "'Of an engagement?' "'Quite so,' said the Colonel. "'Of the late engagement?' "'Of the late engagement.' "'Please to describe it, and then hand it to the President of the Court.' From that triumphant moment my sufferings and my dangers were at an end. The Court rose up and jumped on discovering that I had strictly obeyed orders. My foe, the Admiral, who, though muzzled, was malignant yet, contrived to suggest that I was dishonoured by having quitted the field. But the Colonel himself had done as much, and gave his opinion upon his word and honour as a pirate, that when all was lost, the field might be quitted without disgrace. I was going to be found no coward and not guilty, and my blooming bride was going to be publicly restored to my arms in a procession, when an unlooked-for event disturbed the general rejoicing. This was no other than the Emperor of France's aunt catching hold of his hair. The proceedings abruptly terminated, and the court tumultuously dissolved. It was when the shades of the next evening but one were beginning to fall, ere yet the silver beams of Luna touched the earth, that four forms might have been described slowly advancing towards the weeping willow on the borders of the pond, the now deserted scene of the day before yesterday's agonies and triumphs. On a nearer approach, and by a practised eye, these might have been identified as the forms of the pirate colonel with his bride, and of the day before yesterday's gallant prisoner with his bride. On the beauteous faces of the nymphs dejection sat enthroned. All four reclined under the willow for some minutes without speaking, till at length the bride of the colonel poutingly observed, "'It's of no use pretending any more, and we had better give it up.' "'Ha!' exclaimed the pirate. "'Pretending?' "'Don't go on like that, you worry me,' returned his bride. The lovely bride of Tinkling echoed the incredible declaration. The two warriors exchanged stony glances. "'If,' said the bride of the pirate colonel, "'grown-up people won't do what they ought to do, and will put us out, what comes of our pretending?' "'We only get into scrapes,' said the bride of Tinkling. "'You know very well,' pursued the Colonel's bride, "'that Miss Drovey wouldn't fall. You complained of it yourself, and you know how disgracefully the court-martial ended. As to our marriage, would my people acknowledge it at home?' "'Or would my people acknowledge ours?' said the bride of Tinkling. Again the two warriors exchanged stony glances. "'If you knocked at the door and claimed me, after you were told to go away,' said the Colonel's bride, 
You would only have your hair pulled, or your ears, or your nose. If you persisted in ringing at the bell and claiming me, said the bride of tinkling to that gentleman, you would have things dropped in your head from the window over the handle, or you would be played upon by the garden engine. And at your own homes, resumed the bride of the colonel, it would be just as bad. You would be sent to bed, or something equally undignified. Again, how would you support us? The pirate colonel replied in a courageous voice, By rapine! But his bride retorted, Suppose the grown-up people wouldn't be rapined? Then, said the colonel, they should pay the penalty in blood. But suppose they should object, retorted his bride, and wouldn't pay the penalty in blood or anything else. A mournful silence ensued. Then, do you no longer love me, Alice? asked the colonel. Redforth, I am for ever thine, returned his bride. Then, do you no longer love me, Nettie? asked the present writer. Tinkling, I am ever thine, returned my bride. We all four embraced. Let me not be misunderstood by the giddy. The colonel embraced his own bride, and I embraced mine, but two times two make four. Nettie and I, said Alice mournfully, have been considering our position. The grown-up people are too strong for us. They make us ridiculous. Besides, they have changed the times. William Tinkling's baby brother was christened yesterday. What took place? Was any king present? Answer, William. I said, No, unless disguised as great-uncle Chopper. Any queen? There had been no queen that I knew of at our house. There might have been one in the kitchen, but I didn't think so, or else the servants would have mentioned it. Any fairies? None that were visible. We had an idea amongst us, I think, said Alice, with a melancholy voice. We four that Miss Grimmer would prove to be the wicked fairy, and would come in at the christening with her crutch-stick, and give the child a bad gift. Was there anything of that sort? Answer, William. I said that Ma had said afterwards, and so she had, that great-uncle Chopper's gift was a shabby one. But she hadn't said a bad one. She had called it shabby, electrotyped, second-hand, and below his income. It must be the grown-up people who have changed all this, said Alice. We couldn't have changed it, if we had been so inclined, and we never should have been. Or perhaps Miss Grimmer is a wicked fairy after all, and won't act up to it because the grown-up people have persuaded her not to. Either way, they would make us ridiculous if we told them what we expected. "'Tyrants!' muttered the pirate colonel. "'Nay, my Redforth,' said Alice, "'say not so. Call not names, my Redforth, or they will apply to Pa.' "'Let em, said the colonel. I do not care. Who's he?' Tinkling here undertook the perilous task of remonstrating with his lawless friend, who consented to withdraw the moody expressions above quoted. "'What remains for us to do?' Alice went on in her mild, wise way. "'We must educate. We must pretend in a new manner. We must wait.' The colonel clenched his teeth, four out in front and a piece of another, and he had been twice dragged to the door of a dentist, desperate, but had escaped from his guards. "'How educate? How pretend in a new manner? How wait?' "'Educate the grown-up people,' replied Alice. "'We part to-night.' "'Yes, Redforth,' for the colonel tucked up his cuffs. "'Part to-night.' Let us in these next holidays, now going to begin, throw our thoughts into something educational for the grown-up people, hinting to them how things ought to be. Let us veil our meaning under a mask of romance, you, I, and Nettie. William Tinkling, being the plainest and quickest writer, shall copy it out. Is it agreed? The Colonel answered sulkily, I don't mind. He then asked, How about pretending? 
"'We will pretend,' said Alice, "'that we are children, not that we are those grown-up people, who won't help us out as they ought, and who understand us so badly.' The Colonel, still much dissatisfied, growled, "'How about waiting?' "'We will wait,' answered little Alice, taking Nettie's hand in hers and looking up to the sky. "'We will wait, ever constant and true, till the times have got so changed as that everything helps us out, and nothing makes us ridiculous, and the fairies have come back. We will wait, ever constant and true, till we are eighty, ninety, or one hundred. And then the fairies will send us children, and we will help them out, poor pretty little creatures, if they pretend ever so much." "'So we will, dear,' said Nettie Ashford, taking her round the waist with both arms and kissing her. And now, if my husband will go and buy some cherries for us, I have got some money." In the friendliest manner I invited the Colonel to go with me, but he so far forgot himself as to acknowledge the invitation by kicking out behind, and then lying down on his stomach on the grass, pulling it up and chewing it. When I came back, however, Alice had nearly brought him out of his vexation, and was soothing him by telling him how soon we should all be ninety. As we sat under the willow-tree and ate the cherries, fair, for Alice shared them out, we played at being ninety. Nettie complained that she had a bone in her old back, and it made her hobble, and Alice sang a song in an old woman's way, but it was very pretty, and we were all very merry. At least, I don't know about merry exactly, but all comfortable. There was a most tremendous lot of cherries, and Alice always had with her some neat little bag or box or case to hold things. In that night it was a tiny wine-glass. So Alice and Nettie said they would make some cherry-wine to drink our love at parting. Each of us had a glassful, and it was delicious, and each of us drank the toast, Our love at parting. The Colonel drank his wine last, and it got into my head directly that it got into his directly. Anyhow, his eyes rolled immediately after he had turned the glass upside down, and he took me on one side and proposed in a hoarse whisper that we should cut him out still. How did he mean? I asked my lawless friend. Cut our brides out, said the Colonel, and then cut our way, without going down a single turning, bang to the Spanish main. We might have tried it, though I didn't think it would answer, only we looked round and saw that there was nothing but moonlight under the willow-tree, and that our pretty, pretty wives were gone. We burst out crying. The Colonel gave in second and came to first, but he gave in strong. We were ashamed of our red eyes, and hung about for half an hour to whiten them. Likewise a piece of chalk round the rims, I doing the Colonel's, and he mine, but afterwards found in the bedroom looking-glass not natural, besides inflammation. Our conversation turned on being ninety. The Colonel told me he had a pair of boots that wanted soling and healing, but he thought it hardly worth while to mention it to his father, as he himself should so soon be ninety, when he thought shoes would be more convenient. The Colonel also told me, with his hand upon his hip, that he himself already getting on in life and turning rheumatic. And I told him the same, and when they said at our house at supper, they are always bothering about something, that I stooped, I felt so glad. This is the end of the beginning part that you were to believe most. End of Introductory Romance from the Pen of William Tinkling, Esquire, Aged Eight Old Lamps for New Ones This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1 
Old Lamps for New Ones by Charles Dickens. The magician in Aladdin may possibly have neglected the study of men for the study of alchemical books, but it is certain that in spite of his profession he was no conjurer. He knew nothing of human nature or the everlasting set of the current of human affairs. If, when he fraudulently sought to obtain possession of the wonderful lamp, and went up and down disguised before the flying palace, crying, New lamps for old ones, he had reversed his cry, and made it old lamps for new ones, he would have been so far before his time as to have projected himself into the nineteenth century of our Christian era. This age is so perverse, and is so very short of faith, in consequence, as some suppose, of there having been a run on that bank for a few generations, that a parallel and beautiful idea, generally known among the ignorant as the Young England Hallucination, unhappily expired before it could run alone, to the great grief of a small but a very select circle of mourners. There is something so fascinating to a mind capable of any serious reflection, in the notion of ignoring all that has been done for the happiness and elevation of mankind during three or four centuries of slow and dearly bought amelioration, that we have always thought it would tend soundly to the improvement of the general public, if any tangible symbol, any outward and visible sign expressive of that admirable conception, could be held up before them. We are happy to have found such a sign at last, and although it would make a very indifferent sign indeed in the licensed fiddling sense of the word, and would probably be rejected with contempt and horror by any Christian publication, it has our warmest philosophical appreciation. In the fifteenth century a certain feeble lamp of art arose in the Italian town of Urbino, this poor light, Raphael Sanzio by name, better known to a few miserably mistaken wretches in these later days as Raphael, another burned at the same time called Titian, was fed with a preposterous idea of beauty, with a ridiculous power of etherealizing and exalting to the very heaven of heavens what was most sublime and lovely in the expression of the human face divine on earth, with the truly contemptible conceit of finding in poor humanity the fallen likeness of the angels of God, and raising it up again to their pure spiritual condition. This very fantastic whim effected a low revolution in art, in this wise, that beauty came to be regarded as one of its indispensable elements. In this very poor delusion, artists have continued until this present nineteenth century, when it was reserved for some bold aspirants to put it down. The pre-Raphael Brotherhood, ladies and gentlemen, is the dread tribunal which is to set this matter right. Walk up, walk up, and here, conspicuous on the wall of the Royal Academy of Art in England, in the eighty-second year of their annual exhibition, you shall see what this new holy brotherhood, this terrible police that is to disperse all post-Raphael offenders, has been and done. 
you come in this royal academy exhibition which is familiar with the works of wilkie collins etty eastlake mulready leslie maclise turner stanfield landseer roberts danby creswick lee webster herbert dice cope and others who would have been renowned as great masters in any age or country you come in this place to the contemplation of a holy family you will have the goodness to discharge from your minds all post-raphael ideas all religious aspirations all elevating thoughts all tender awful sorrowful ennobling sacred graceful or beautiful associations and to prepare yourselves as befits such a subject pre-raphaelly considered for the lowest depths of what is mean odious repulsive and revolting you behold the interior of a carpenter's shop in the foreground of that carpenter's shop is a hideous wry-necked blubbering red-headed boy in a bedgown who appears to have received a poke in the hand from the stick of another boy with whom he has been playing in an adjacent gutter and to be holding it up for the contemplation of a kneeling woman so horrible in her ugliness that supposing it were possible for any human creature to exist for a moment with that dislocated throat she would stand out from the rest of the company as a monster in the vilest cabaret in france or the lowest gin-shop in england two almost naked carpenters master and journeyman worthy companions of this agreeable female are working at their trade a boy with some small flavour of humanity in him is entering with a vessel of water and nobody is paying any attention to a snuffy old woman who seems to have mistaken that shop for the tobacconist's next door and to be hopelessly waiting at the counter to be served with half an ounce of her favourite mixture wherever it is possible to express ugliness of feature limb or attitude you have it expressed such men as the carpenters might be undressed in any hospital where dirty drunkards in a high state of varicose veins are received their very toes have walked out of st giles this in the nineteenth century and in the eighty-second year of the annual exhibition of the national academy of art is the pre-raphael representation to us ladies and gentlemen of the most solemn passage which our minds can ever approach this in the nineteenth century and in the eighty-second year of the annual exhibition of the national academy of art is what pre-raphael art can do to render reverence and homage to the faith in which we live and die consider this picture well consider the pleasure we should have in a similar pre-raphael rendering of a favourite horse or dog or cat and coming fresh from a pretty considerable turmoil about desecration in connection with the national post office let us extol this great achievement and commend the national academy in further considering this symbol of the great retrogressive principle it is particularly gratifying to observe that such objects as the shavings which are strewn on the carpenter's floor are admirably painted and that the pre-raphael brother is indisputably accomplished in the manipulation of his art it is gratifying to observe this because the fact involves no low effort at notoriety 
everybody knowing that it is by no means easier to call attention to a very indifferent pig with five legs than to a symmetrical pig with four also because it is good to know that the national academy thoroughly feels and comprehends the high range and exalted purposes of art distinctly perceives that art includes something more than the faithful portraiture of shavings or the skilful colouring of drapery imperatively requires in short that it shall be informed with mind and sentiment will on no account reduce it to a narrow question of trade juggling with a palette palette knife and paint-box it is likewise pleasing to reflect that the great educational establishment foresees the difficulty into which it would be led by attaching greater weight to mere handicraft than to any other consideration even to considerations of common reverence or decency which absurd principle in the event of a skilful painter of the figure becoming a very little more perverted in his taste than certain skilful painters are just now might place her gracious majesty in a very painful position one of these fine private view days would it were in our power to congratulate our readers on the hopeful prospects of the great retrogressive principle of which this thoughtful picture is the sign and emblem would that we could give our readers encouraging assurance of a healthy demand for old lamps in exchange for new ones and a steady improvement in the old lamp market the perversity of mankind is such and the untoward arrangements of providence are such that we cannot lay that flattering unction to their souls we can only report what brotherhoods stimulated by this sign are forming and what opportunities will be presented to the people if the people will but accept them in the first place the pre-perspective brotherhood will be presently incorporated for the subversion of all known rules and principles of perspective it is intended to swear every ppb to a solemn renunciation of the art of perspective on a soup plate of the willow pattern and we may expect on the occasion of the eighty-third annual exhibition of the royal academy of art in england to see some pictures by this pious brotherhood realising hogarth's idea of a man on a mountain several miles off lighting his pipe at the upper window of a house in the foreground but we are informed that every brick in the house will be a portrait that the man's boots will be copied with the utmost fidelity from a pair of bluchers sent up out of northamptonshire for the purpose and that the texture of his hands including four chilblains a whitlow and ten dirty nails will be a triumph of the painter's art a society to be called the pre-newtonian brotherhood was lately projected by a young gentleman under articles to a civil engineer who objected to being considered bound to conduct himself according to the laws of gravitation but this young gentleman being reproached by some aspiring companions with the timidity of his conception has abrogated that idea in favour of a pre-galileo brotherhood now flourishing who distinctly refuse to perform any annual revolution round the sun and have arranged that the world shall not do so any more 
the course to be taken by the royal academy of art in reference to this brotherhood is not yet decided upon but it is whispered that some other large educational institutions in the neighbourhood of oxford are nearly ready to pronounce in favour of it several promising students connected with the royal college of surgeons have held a meeting to protest against the circulation of the blood and to pledge themselves to treat all the patients they can get on principles condemnatory of that innovation a pre-harvey brotherhood is the result from which a great deal may be expected by the undertakers in literature a very spirited effort has been made which is no less than the formation of a p g a p c b or pre gower and pre chaucer brotherhood for the restoration of the ancient english style of spelling and the weeding out from all libraries public and private of those and all later pretenders particularly a person of loose character named shakespeare it having been suggested however that this happy idea could scarcely be considered complete while the art of printing was permitted to remain unmolested another society under the name of the pre laurentius brotherhood has been established in connection with it for the abolition of all but manuscript books these mr pugin has engaged to supply in characters that nobody on earth shall be able to read and it is confidently expected by those who have seen the house of lords that he will faithfully redeem his pledge in music a retrogressive step in which there is much hope has been taken the p a b or pre agincourt brotherhood has arisen nobly devoted to consign to oblivion mozart beethoven handel and every other such ridiculous reputation and to fix its millennium as its name implies before the date of the first regular musical composition known to have been achieved in england as this institution has not yet commenced active operations it remains to be seen whether the royal academy of music will be a worthy sister of the royal academy of art and admit this enterprising body to its orchestra we have it on the best authority that its compositions will be quite as rough and discordant as the real old original that it will be in a word exactly suited to the pictorial art we have endeavoured to describe we have strong hopes therefore that the royal academy of music not wanting an example may not want courage the regulation of social matters as separated from the fine arts has been undertaken by the pre-henry the seventh brotherhood who date from the same period as the pre-raphael brotherhood this society as cancelling all the advances of nearly four hundred years and reverting to one of the most disagreeable periods of english history when the nation was yet very slowly emerging from barbarism and when gentle female foreigners come over to be the wives of scottish kings wept bitterly as well they might at being left alone among the savage court must be regarded with peculiar favour as the time of ugly religious caricatures called mysteries it is thoroughly pre-raphael in its spirit and may be deemed the twin brother to that great society 
we should be certain of the plague among many other advantages if this brotherhood were properly encouraged all these brotherhoods and any other society of the like kind now in being or yet to be have at once a guiding star and a reduction of their great ideas to something palpable and obvious to the senses in the sign to which we take the liberty of directing their attention we understand that it is in the contemplation of each society to become possessed with all convenient speed of a collection of such pictures and that once every year to wit upon the first of april the whole intend to amalgamate in a high festival to be called the convocation of eternal boobies End of Old Lamps for New Ones by Charles Dickens, 1850「A Tale of the Good Old Times from Pearl Fishing, Choice Stories from Dickens' Household Words. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1 A Tale of the Good Old Times from Pearl Fishing Choice Stories from Dickens's Household Words by Charles Dickens An alderman of the ancient borough of Beetlebury and churchwarden of the parish of St. Wolfstands in the said borough, Mr. Blenkinsop might have been called, in the language of the sixteenth century, a man of worship this title would probably have pleased him very much it being an obsolete one and he entertaining an extraordinary regard for all things obsolete or thoroughly deserving to be so he looked up with profound veneration to the griffins which formed the waterspouts of st wolfstan's church and he almost worshipped an old boot under the name of a blackjack which on the affidavit of a forsworn broker he had bought for a drinking vessel of the sixteenth century mr blenkinsop even more admired the wisdom of our ancestors than he did their furniture and fashions he believed that none of their statutes and ordinances could possibly be improved upon and in this persuasion had petitioned parliament against every just or merciful change which since he had arrived at man's estate had been made in the laws he had successively opposed all the beetlebury improvements gas waterworks infant schools mechanics institute and library he had been active in an agitation against any measure for the improvement of the public health and being a strong advocate of intramural interment was instrumental in defeating an attempt to establish a pretty cemetery outside beetlebury he had successfully resisted a project for removing the pig market from the middle of the high street through his influence the shambles which were corporation property had been allowed to remain where they were namely close to the town hall and immediately under his own and his brethren's noses in short he had regularly consistently and nobly done his best to frustrate every scheme that was proposed for the comfort and advantage of his fellow-creatures for this conduct he was highly esteemed and respected and indeed his hostility with any interference of disease had procured him the honour of a public testimonial shortly after the presentation of which with several neat speeches the cholera broke out in beetlebury 
the truth is that mr blenkinsop's views on the subject of public health and popular institutions were supposed to be economical though they were in truth desperately costly and so pleased some of the ratepayers besides he withstood ameliorations and defended nuisances and abuses with all the heartiness of an actual philanthropist moreover he was a jovial fellow a boon companion and his love of antiquity leaned particularly towards old ale and old port wine of both of these beverages he had been partaking rather largely at a visitation dinner where after the retirement of the bishop and his clergy festivities were kept up till late under the presidency of the deputy registrar one of the last to quit the crown and mitre was mr blenkinsop he lived in a remote part of the town whither as he did not walk exactly in a straight line it may be allowable perhaps to say that he bent his course many of the dwellers in beetlebury high street awakened at half-past twelve on that night by somebody passing below singing not very distinctly with a jolly full bottle let each man be armed were indebted little as they may have suspected it to alderman blenkinsop for their serenade in his homeward way stood the market cross a fine medieval structure supported on a series of circular steps by a groined arch which served as a canopy to the stone figure of an ancient burgess this was the effigies of winken de Vokes, once mayor of beetlebury and a great benefactor to the town in which he had founded almshouses and a grammar school a d fourteen forty the post was formerly occupied by st wolfstan but de Vokes had been removed from the town hall in cromwell's time and promoted to the vacant pedestal vice wolfstan demolished mr blenkinsop highly revered this work of art and he now stopped to take a view of it by moonlight in that doubtful glimmer it seemed almost lifelike mr blenkinsop had not much imagination yet he could well-nigh fancy he was looking upon the veritable winken with his bonnet beard furred gown and staff and his great book under his arm so vivid was this impression that it impelled him to apostrophize the statue fine old fellow said mr blenkinsop rare old buck we shall never look upon your like again ah the good old times the jolly good old times no times like the good old times my ancient worthy no such times as the good old times and pray sir what times do you call the good old times in distinct and deliberate accents answered according to the positive affirmation of mr blenkinsop subsequently made before divers witnesses the statue mr blenkinsop is sure that he was in the perfect possession of his senses it is certain that he was not the dupe of ventriloquism or any other illusion the value of these convictions must be a question between him and the world to whose perusal the facts of his tale simply as stated by himself are here submitted when first he heard the statue speak mr blenkinsop says he certainly experienced a kind of a sudden shock a momentary feeling of consternation but this soon abated in a wonderful manner the statue's voice was quite mild and gentle not in the least grim had no funeral twang in it and was quite different from the tone a statue might be expected to take by anybody who had derived his notions on that subject from having heard the representative of the class in don giovanni 
well what times do you mean by the good old times repeated the statue quite familiarly the churchwarden was able to reply with some composure that such a question coming from such a quarter had taken him a little by surprise come come mr blenkinsop said the statue don't be astonished tis half past twelve and a moonlit night as your favourite police the sleepy and infirm old watchman says don't you know that we statues are apt to speak when spoken to at these hours collect yourself i will help you to answer my own questions let us go back step by step and allow me to lead you to begin by the good old times do you mean the reign of george the third the last of them sir replied mr blenkinsop very respectfully i am inclined to think were seen by the people who lived in those days i should hope so the statue replied those the good old times what mr blenkinsop when men were hanged by dozens almost weekly for paltry thefts when a nursing woman was dragged to the gallows with a child at her breast for shoplifting to the value of a shilling when you lost your american colonies and plunged into war with france which to say nothing of the useless bloodshed it cost has left you saddled with the national debt surely you will not call these the good old times will you mr blenkinsop not exactly sir no on reflection i don't know that i can answered mr blenkinsop he had now it was such a civil well-spoken statue lost all sense of the preternatural horror of his situation and scratched his head just as if he had been posed in argument by an ordinary mortal well then resumed the statue my dear sir shall we take the two or three reigns preceding what think you of the then existing state of prisons and prison discipline unfortunate debtors confined indiscriminately with felons in the midst of filth vice and misery unspeakable criminals under sentence of death tippling in the condemned cell with the ordinary for their pot companion flogging a common punishment of women convicted of larceny what say you of the times when london streets were absolutely dangerous and the passenger ran the risk of being hustled and robbed even in the daytime when not only hounslow and bagshot heath but the public road swarmed with robbers and a stage-coach was as frequently plundered as a hen-roost when indeed the road was esteemed the legitimate resource of a gentleman in difficulties and a highwayman was commonly called captain if not respected accordingly when cock-fighting bear-baiting and bull-baiting were popular nay fashionable amusements when the bulk of the landed gentry could barely read and write and divided their time between fox-hunting and guzzling when a duellist was a hero and when it was an honour to have killed your man when a gentleman could hardly open his mouth without uttering a profane or filthy oath when the country was continually in peril of civil war through a disputed succession and two murderous insurrections followed by more murderous executions actually took place this era of inhumanity shamelessness brigandage brutality and personal and political insecurity what say you of it mr blenkinsop do you regard this wig and pigtail period as constituting the good old times respected friend there was queen anne's golden reign sir deferentially suggested mr blenkinsop a golden reign exclaimed the statue 
a reign of favoritism and court trickery at home and profitless war abroad the time of bolingbrokes and harleys and churchill's intrigues the reign of sarah duchess of marlborough and mrs mesham a golden fiddlestick i imagine you must go farther back yet for your good old times mr blenkinsop well answered the churchwarden i suppose i must sir after what you say take william the third's rule persuaded the statue war war again nothing but war i don't think you'll particularly call these the good old times then what will you say to those of james the second were they the good old times when judge jeffreys sat on the bench when monmouth's rebellion was followed by the bloody assize when the king tried to set himself above the law and lost his crown in consequence does your worship fancy that these were the good old times mr blenkinsop admitted that he could not very well imagine that they were were charles the second's the good old times demanded the statue with a court full of riot and debauchery a palace much less decent than any modern casino whilst scotch covenanters were having their legs crushed in the boots under the auspices and personal superintendence of his royal highness the duke of york the time of titus oates bedloe and dangerfield and their sham plots with the hangings drawings and quarterings on perjured evidence that followed them when russell and sydney were judicially murdered the time of the great plague and fire of london the public money wasted by roguery and embezzlement while sailors lay starving in the streets for want of their just pay the dutch about the same time burning their ships in the medway my friend i think you will hardly call the scandalous monarchy of the merry monarch the good old times i feel the difficulty which you suggest sir owned mr blenkinsop now that a man of your loyalty pursued the statue should identify the good old times with cromwell's protectorate is of course out of the question decidedly sir exclaimed mr blenkinsop he shall not have a statue though you enjoy that honour bowing and yet said the statue with all its faults this era was perhaps no worse than any we have discussed yet never mind it was a dreary cant-ridden one and if you don't think those england's palmy days neither do i there's the previous reign then during the first part of it there was the king endeavouring to assert arbitrary power during the latter the parliament were fighting against him in the open field what ultimately became of him i need not say at what stage of king charles i's career did the good old times exist mr alderman i need barely mention the star chamber and poor in prin i merely allude to the state of strafford and of laud in consideration should you fix the good old times anywhere thereabouts i'm afraid not indeed sir mr blenkinsop responded tapping his forehead what is your opinion of james i's reign are you enamoured with the good old times of the gunpowder plot or when sir walter raleigh was beheaded or when hundreds of poor miserable old women were burnt alive for witchcraft and the royal wiseacre on the throne wrote as wise a book in defence of the execrable superstition through which they suffered mr blenkinsop confessed himself obliged to give up the times of james i now then continued the statue we come to elizabeth there i've got you interrupted mr blenkinsop exultingly 
i beg your pardon sir he added with a sense of the freedom he had taken but everybody talks of the times of good queen bess you know ha ha laughed the statue not at all like zamiel or don guzman or a pavior's rammer but really with unaffected gaiety everybody sometimes says very foolish things suppose everybody's lot had been cast under elizabeth how would everybody have relished being subject to the jurisdiction of the ecclesiastical commission with its power of imprisonment rack and torture how would everybody have liked to see his roman catholic and dissenting fellow-subjects butchered fined and imprisoned for their opinions and charitable ladies butchered too for giving them shelter in the sweet compassion of their hearts what would everybody have thought of the murder of mary queen of scots would everybody would anybody would you wish to have lived in these days whose emblems are cropped ears pillory stocks thumbscrews gibbet axe chopping-block and scavenger's daughter will you take your stand upon this stage of history for the good old times mr blenkinsop i should rather prefer firmer and safer ground to be sure upon the whole answered the worshipper of antiquity dubiously well now said the statue tis getting late and unaccustomed as i am to conversational speaking i must be brief were those the good old times when sanguinary mary roasted bishops and lighted the fires of smithfield when henry the eighth the british bluebeard cut his wives heads off and burnt catholic and protestant at the same stake when richard the third smothered his nephews in the tower when the wars of the roses deluged the land with blood when jack cade marched upon london when we were disgracefully driven out of france under henry the sixth or as disgracefully went marauding there under henry the fifth were the good old times those of northumberland's rebellion of richard the second's assassination of the battles burnings massacres cruel tormentings and atrocities which form the sum of the plantagenet reigns of john's declaring himself the pope's vassal and performing dental operations on the jews of the forest laws and curfew under norman kings at what point of this series of bloody and cruel annals will you place the times which you praise or do your good old times extend over all that period when somebody or other was constantly committing high treason and there was a perpetual exhibition of heads on london bridge and temple bar it was allowed by mr blenkinsop that either alternative represented considerable difficulty was it in the good old times that harold fell at hastings and william the conqueror enslaved england were those blissful years the ages of monkery of odo and dunstan bearding monarchs and branding queens of danish ravage and slaughter or were they those of the saxon heptarchy and the worship of thor and odin of the advent of hengist and horsa of british subjugation by romans or lastly must we go back to the ancient britons druidism and human sacrifices and say that those were the real unadulterated genuine good old times when the true blue natives of this island went naked painted with woad upon my word sir replied mr blenkinsop after the observations that i have heard from you this night i acknowledge that i do feel myself rather at a loss to assign a precise period to the times in question shall i do it for you asked the statue if you please sir i should be very much obliged if you would 
replied the bewildered Blankensop, greatly relieved. The best times, Mr. Blankensop, said the statue, are the oldest. They are wisest, for the older the world grows, the more experience it acquires. It is older now than ever it was. The oldest and best times the world has yet seen are the present. These, so far as we have yet gone, are the genuine good old times, sir. Indeed, sir? ejaculated the astonished alderman. Yes, my good friend, these are the best times that we know of, bad as the best may be, but in proportion to their defects they afford room for amendment. Mind that, sir, in the future exercise of your municipal and political wisdom. Don't continue to stand in the light which is gradually illuminating human darkness. The future is the date of that happy period which your imagination has fixed in the past. It will arrive when all shall do what is right. Hence none shall suffer what is wrong. The true good old times are yet to come. Have you any idea when, sir? Mr. Blenkinsop inquired, modestly. That is a little beyond me, the statue answered. I cannot say how long it will take to convert the Blenkinsops. I devoutly wish you may live to see them. And with that I wish you good night, Mr. Blenkinsop. Sir, returned Mr. Blenkinsop, with a profound bow, I have the honor to wish you the same. Mr. Blenkinsop returned home an altered man. This was soon manifest. In a few days he astonished the corporation by proposing the appointment of an officer of health to preside over sanitary affairs of Beetleberry. It had already transpired that he had consented to the introduction of Lucifer matches into his domestic establishment, in which previously he had insisted on sticking to the old tinder-box. Next, to the wonder of all Beetleberry, he was the first to propose a great new school, and to sign a requisition that a county penitentiary might be established for the reformation of juvenile offenders. The last account of him is that he has not only become a subscriber to the Mechanics Institute, but that he actually presided thereat lately on the occasion of a lecture on geology. The remarkable change which has occurred in Mr. Blenkinsop's views and principles he himself refers to his conversation with the statue as above related. The narrative, however, his fellow townsmen receive with incredulous expressions, accompanied by gestures and grimaces of like import. They hint that Mr. Blenkinsop had been thinking for himself a little, and only wanted a plausible excuse for recanting his errors. Most of his fellow aldermen believe him mad, not less on account of his new moral and political sentiments, so very different from their own, than of his statue story. When it has been suggested to them that he has only had his spectacles cleaned, and has been looking about him, they shake their heads, and say that he had better have left his spectacles alone, and that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and a good deal of dirt quite the contrary. Their spectacles have never been cleaned, they say, and any one may see they don't want cleaning. The truth seems to be that Mr. Blenkinsop has found an altogether new pair of spectacles, which enable him to see in the right direction. Formerly he could only look backwards. He now looks forwards to the grand object that all human eyes should have in view, progressive improvement. End of A Tale of the Good Old Times 
from pearl fishing choice stories from dickens household words 